Now, I've made statements that these fossils are important. Now, I'll go further than that. I believe they are of unparalleled importance. They may teach us more about our remote ancestors than we've ever known. I believe they're of vast age. I believe they will show that creatures essentially resembling mankind walked upon this earth between three and five million years ago. Welcome to Guest Choice, where today we're looking at Quatermass, a groundbreaking 60-year-old science fiction show to understand its impact on the world and to see if it's worth watching for a modern audience. I'm your host, a man who regularly digs myself into situations I can't get out of. My co-host is Guy, who I'm pretty sure has yet to evolve out of being a Martian. <laughs> Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. And our guest today is world-renowned Doctor Who fan, Toby Adok. Did I say that right? Well, I, I mean, I think there are variations. It's continental shift, isn't it? But it's 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 Haydoke, but it's a made-up name. Um, so oh. I think any pronunciation is okay. I've oh. I've had Hadoke. I know the exact expression on somebody's face that means I'm slightly surprised you're not Japanese because I've had Hadoki, <laughs> uh, Haddock, all sorts. Um, so I think it was a brave stab. Okay, thank you. Well, hello, Toby. <laughs> hello, nice to talk to you. So, Toby, given that you've dedicated your personal and professional life to Doctor Who and that we spend half of our time covering classic Doctor Who, we, of course, have chosen to have you on to discuss Quatermass, <laughs> something completely or, well, yeah. at least something a little bit different <laughs> from Doctor Who. Yes, and, and uh, that's, that's very nice for me. I, lo I love Quatermass, and, and, and it, was, it was the sort of precursor to Doctor Who, although it's, it's, a slightly, it's, not, it's not sort of popular fant fantasy family entertainment in the way that Doctor Who is. This was, mm. you know, this was TV drama, and it was spoken mm. within hallowed terms when I was mm. younger, and almost as if a, that was proper science fiction, not this Doctor Who that you like by my older, <laughs> older siblings and parents and things. But it is, it is the granddaddy of them all, and it's, and it's hugely um, influential on everything. I hope mm. you liked it. And I'm really excited to talk about it because, well, and I want to get Guy's impression, but here's my take on the U.S. side. It's actually hard to get. Like, it, I couldn't find it streaming. You know, you order a DVD and it turns out to be region locked, yeah. et cetera. So in the U.S., uh, my impression is most people are probably like me, even if they're really into science fiction, which is I'd heard of it. I'd seen some things about it, but I really don't know much about it. And I think you were in kind of a similar situation, right, Guy? Yeah, yeah, I had to resort to some moderately underhanded measures just to be able to watch it. So I'm really excited to talk about it because I feel like there's this Quatermass-shaped hole in our knowledge here in the U.S., and I'd love to have you help fill that. And you've already mentioned that it was sort of taken more seriously. Where does Quatermass fit in the U.K. You know, culture? What, what? Obviously, Doctor Who's a big deal, you know. Yes, but it's it's sort of almost prehistory, and our experience, of course, is different from you in the states because I think the films probably loom larger, which I'm sure we'll mm -hmm. we'll talk about at some point. And John Carpenter is a big champion of the first two films, but no, they started in they started at a, t a great time of cultural shift in the UK. You know, we're still in the back end of rationing. You know, still in the shadow of of World War One, uh, World War Two. But in 1953, Everest was conquered. Queen Elizabeth had her coronation in Westminster Abbey, and lots of people brought television sets for that. And television was largely filmed theatre. But then mm. this Austrian émigré who'd escaped from the Holocaust 
Rudolph Cartier had started directing stuff at the at the BBC, and an Isle of Man writer called uh, Nigel Neal, steeped in Isle of Man folklore, but also his his father was a journalist and he was a man of great imagination. They had to fill a gap in the schedules. They'd done a little bit of work together and produce something original. A lot, as I say, a lot of it was filmed theatre. You know, three. This was all done like the first ever Quatermass was done live, almost entirely live with a f- small number of film inserts. And we've lost most of that, right? There's like two episodes. Well, not even lost it. They didn't even bother to record beyond episode two. Because in episode Hmm. two, a fly landed on the camera that was recording the monitor uh, that got the pictures. And so the pictures were of bad enough quality that they decided not uh, to record anymore, sadly, tragically. Hmm. Uh, And that was the Quatermass experiment, which was really the first sort of proper original TV science fiction drama serial. And it sort of set the nation alight partially because... The climax was set in Westminster Abbey, which had been on the screens not long before. And, and mm. it's got mention of Everest and all that sort of thing. So it's very, very timely. And it's a sort of thriller about an astronaut who comes back and, and mutates into to, to this creature that he's sort of picked up on his travels. And that was in 1953. And then Quatermass, the, the team then did a version of 1984 in 1954, which had questions asked in the house and was a huge talking point. But they, you know, Cartier was based, was very cinematic. So he he didn't want television to be the sort of flat filming and and you know all close ups that uh, or mm-hmm. well not even that just sort of landscape shots. So he brought a cinematic thing to to Neil's imagination. And then they did Quatermass Two, which was a bit sort of more like the X Files. It's like the invasion's already taken place uh, a year earlier, so it's a bit more sort of mysterious and what's mm. going on and and who's been affected by the creatures. And then mm. uh, along comes Quatermass and the Pit. By which time Quatermass is now a really established name, and this is uh, that's again two three years after Quatermass two, and it's an invasion that is, as we will discover, over or or is it? Mm-hmm. So he's got two. He, he takes the three sort of basic science fiction plots and sort of invents them, if you like, yeah. for television. But they were prestigious productions. They they're talked of now in you know people talk of cult. This was not cult. This was the one person in the street who had a telly. Everybody else would pile into their house when Quatermass mm. was on. Pubs would empty when Quatermass was on. Uh, Hereford County Council tabled a motion to stop their council meeting so that everyone could watch the last episode of Quatermass in the Pit. Wow. So it was, uh, but it was also, you know, very highly regarded, critically acclaimed as well. And I think they stand yeah. up today. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So I'm curious about Nigel Neal. My impression is that he's one of these guys who could never be happy with his lot in life and i don't know you know was he actually being put upon or is that just kind of his approach to life or what what's his sort of history and everything and am i right that he he, did he do 1984 and sex olympics and such he did yes he did yes yes he no he did 1984 he did the year of the sex olympics he did the stone tape which is another excellent one and some some other brilliant plays many of which are now lost one called wine of india he was the bright young thing in the 50s, the BBC, but he had some bad experiences and carried them with him to the grave. So I think he had quite a, a glass half empty sort of sense of humour. I think some of, some of his wryness you could misread as curmudgeonliness, but he was quite curmudgeonly and a shame. And I think when you've had a success as huge as that, but he did also sort of shoot himself in the foot. I've interviewed John Carpenter for my, my Quatermass book. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Carpenter introduced himself to Neil as a fan and mm-hmm. uh, and and ended up n- not liking him very very much and mm-hmm. and I and I and, and Neil had a bad experience because he was a BBC staff employee when they made the film of the Quatermass experiment he got no money because mm-hmm. it was it's a bit of a Raymond Cusick Daleks situation you know mm-hmm. you're, you're paid by the BBC which means you have holiday day pay and you have a pension and you have right, a weekly right. wage and all that sort of thing but it means you don't have the rights to your work so between mm-hmm. the Quatermass experiment and Quatermass two he left the BBC and was now a freelance writer. 
So he he never. I've I've seen memos from him in like 1987 going, and I never got much money for the film of the Crazy Mass Experiment. <laughs> But that doesn't take away. And, and he would be rude about other stuff as well. He's really rude about Doctor Who. He was really rude yeah. about Doomwatch. But again, I don't know if that's his, his sense of humor was, as I say, slightly curmudgeonly. But no, he was, I think, a bit of a, he could be a bit of a grump, which is a shame because I think he is a peerless in terms of his, his ability to synthesize horror and sci-fi, which I think Quatermass does so well. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the films, and and this was a source of confusion for me, not having a lot of familiarity. So if mm. you just go on to Amazon and say, "Okay, I want Quatermass," what you get are these Hammer films. Well, first of all, because we have a so far largely U.S. audience, could you summarize like what Hammer films are and what that's yes, about? Yes, so, so, and, and Quatermass, as well as you know, breaking through on television, it also helped the British film industry because Hammer had been sort of Hammer was a small you know like any sort of british film company in the in the 1950s was you know a handful of guys in a shed with a lot of hope and <laughs> they they bought the rights to the quatermass experiment and val guest made a made a very decent film it's it's not as cerebral as the tv version and i'm afraid we do that thing when we want to feel special in the uk is we import an american to give it a bit of glitz and glamour <laughs> and we imported uh brand don levy who i don't know if he brought glitz and glamour but he certainly brought staccato delivery and uh, I think a belly full of booze with him and <laughs> Nigel Neal hated that because he conceived Quatermass as quite a a sort of unlucky you know it's the burden of science you know it's the mm. it's the the emotional mm. cost of of being a, a pioneer and a, and a, and a discoverer and Quatermass is quite a sort of sad conscience-stricken character not so Brian Don Levy who, who has lines like nothing must stand in the way of science Judith and all of that so so whilst the Valguest first two movies are are very good m- movies don levy is 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 not the quatermass nigel neal wanted uh, so then there's a bit of a delay and then they make the film of quatermass in the pit with a with a mm. different actor playing quatermass but they helped hammer films who then having realized that this sci-fi lark did quite well uh, tried their hand at horror and so mm. then started producing all of the 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 horror films that that made Hammer's name and fortune, but Neil was as grumpy with Hammer as he was with the BBC. <laughs> so at least there was consistency there. And I think the films are very good, but I'm not a, I'm not as up on film as I am on TV. Right. And I and I do think the TV versions are hugely pioneering in terms of the, the 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 quality of their production for stuff that was made at the time. I think they're quite extraordinary. Well, guy, I am hoping to put on our list sometime. Actually, going through the hammer horror films because i haven't seen most of them i have mm-hmm. seen they did kind of bizarrely for them a sherlock holmes of hound of the baskervilles which mm. the person who plays quatermass in this story was watson in that and mm. that hound of the baskervilles is very good and as i understand it by uh sherlock, sherlock holmes people and you know like doctor who there's a whole sherlock holmes mm. community yeah. consider that to be the best representation of hound of the baskervilles which is just Ooh. kind of funny because Hammer was this horror, you know, house, and all of a sudden they do these Sherlock Holmes, and you know, it turns out to be really good. Uh-huh. It's Andre Morel as Watson and Peter Cushing as Holmes, and uh, that 1984 that you mentioned, that is by the Quatermass team of Neil and Cartier. Uh, Peter Cushing is Winston Smith, and Andre Morel is O'Brien. So uh, there's wow. a connection there as well. And I have the DVDs of those. I haven't watched them yet, but I got interested in Nigel Neal when I did start looking into Quatermass a while back. And my <laughs> Christmas gift to Guy was a a region free player, so maybe we can watch <laughs> more of these things going forward. 
I have no yeah. idea quite what the legality of that is, guys. So uh, as the, I say, the, for, uh, forget uh, you know me if the cops show up. The, 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 the BFI are going to, because re- they couldn't release 1984 because the Orwell estate wouldn't let them, but the copyright has just run out. So I have just this week recorded a commentary for wow. the, ni- the 1984 um, that's coming ah. out in April, all beautifully remastered. They still have the original film negatives of the film material oh, nice. and, what, yeah. and i got the impression or and i think i've ordered it they didn't they just do an updated dvd of quite mess in the pit yep yeah, I'm, and- I'm on i'm on the commentary for that i gave all the photos from my private collection to that so it's got loads of production photos that have never been seen before uh and oh. again they've got the blu-ray negative uh, the, the the film negatives for the film material it looks absolutely extraordinary and we literally got every single living production person from Quatermass oh. of the Pit on the commentary. And I've got tapes recorded of some people who are no longer with us and, and we put those all together on the commentary. So I'm very proud of that release, yeah. Wow, oh, fantastic. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting it. Unfortunately, the only one I saw was Region Lock, so I'm hoping the BBC will release a US version of that. But, you know, then I don't know if the demand will be there since people in the US are not as familiar. <laughs> in part, mm. if you're not releasing it here, then people aren't going to be familiar with it. And so, yeah. you know. Yeah. Vicious circle, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, uh, now is the time when Guy and I are going to walk through the show and talk about it. We found a convenient pit in our backyard where we can lower (laughs) ourselves in and project it on the wall, and I'm sure nothing's going to go wrong with that. And we'll be back afterward to discuss the story with you. Things may happen. Okay, so it's just Guy and I for the moment, and for people who are new to our podcast, we're going to do a somewhat detailed walkthrough of Quatermass in the Pit. Not as detailed as we usually do, because this is six episodes that makes up three and a half hours, so it's effectively a very long movie. (laughs) So we're going to try to abbreviate it a little bit while giving you a sense of what it's all about. Now, if you're already very familiar with this, or if you would just like to hear our discussion with Toby, that's fine. Just go ahead and jump ahead. We have bookmarks in the podcast, and you can do that. And so, guys, usually it may be just you and I in this pit here. (laughs) (laughs) But as we always say, we got to do what we got to do. So, Yeah. Well, we'll start with episode one then. And uh, the title of this one is The Half Men. It starts off with... A building on a corner, and it has two signs on it, both street markers. One says Hobbs Lane, SW1, that's Hobbs with two Bs. Uh, And then also on the same wall is another sign that says Hobbs Lane, H-O-B apostrophe S. And when I saw this, I thought thought it was just, I must have been cranky because uh, I thought it was just an obvious production error that nobody caught. (laughs) <laughs> but actually, it is a plot point that pops up a few episodes from now. Yeah, and, and relevant, the one that says Hobbs, as in H-O-B apostrophe S, is, a, is an older rusted sign, so it's been there mm, longer. Yeah, right. The construction site next to this building in the corner, they're building a place called the Baldoon House. Uh, and that's not really important. The house they're building actually never comes into the story at all. <laughs> There's a backhoe digging in this site. They're digging up a little pit, you know, probably for the basement and boiler room of Baldoon House. And it uncovers something in a scoop of dirt. It uncovers a skull. And uh, it's kind of a little, little bit funky looking, but a more or less human style skull. And... 
The workmen persuade their foreman to report it to the authorities because it may be worth something to all of them. They're hoping <laughs> that they might be able to profit off of it, although they end up just not being able to work for a few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's always intentional on these sites, right? It happens, especially in the U.S., like if because you, you're supposed to stop if you hit certain sorts of historical things. And so the people running the site have that tension between do we tell anybody or do we just keep going right 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 yeah because uh because chances are if they you know the law says they have to stop digging but if they do then the job's held up and you know the guys are out of work for however long it takes to sort things out and yeah it's a whole can of worms <laughs> <laughs> we see newspaper stand where the first newspaper has a headline ape man at knight's bridge and other papers have similar headlines on them. Uh, the, the ape men are a big deal, apparently. <laughs> Everybody's real excited about them. And this newspaper is a real repeated theme in all the episodes. It's how they communicate information, almost like, you know, we have sometimes a, a, the old uh, spinning newspaper, but here we just get mm -hmm. the, the newspaper stand. And one of the things, I, the touches I like, which I think is very real about it, is you have the newspaper and you have, you know, whatever the big headline of the day is. And then underneath that, just on a piece of butcher paper or something, the newspaper guy has written whatever he thinks is going to interest people, right? So are there mm -hmm. aliens or, you know, whatever uh, is what is right. put on there. <laughs> yeah, just a little additional salesmanship. <laughs> so we get a glimpse of these newspapers and then we see uh, the entrance to the Nicklin Institute. We find out much later that this is actually a natural history museum. It actually says something like the, for the research of natural history or something like that, but we don't find out that it's actually a museum until later on, but that's what it is. The press is here for a conference with Canadian paleontologist, <laughs> Dr. Matthew Roney. He appeals to the reporters gathered. He says, I'm counting on your help. We need time. You know, they're under a lot of pressure. His, his team is doing the digging for these for these odd ape men skulls. The owners of the site want the work to resume as soon as possible, of course. So the paleontologist, Dr. Roney, is hoping that the, the press will sort of plead his case for him and buy him a little extra digging time. And there's a weird little thing there. There's some PR guy, presumably, you know, provided by the owners of the land. And so Roney tells the press, oh, they're about to kick us out. And the PR guy says, oh, that's off the record. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the press is not allowed to say that. So they kind of, I guess, have to hint at what the situation is. <laughs> he reveals, Dr. Roney reveals, that this find suggests that mankind may be three to five million years old, which is far older than the current beliefs in 1958. So it could be could be really a, a pretty big deal as far as defining the history of mankind. His assistant, Barbara Judd, she wheels in a statue that's a reconstruction of what they think these ape men may have looked like. And I think it's a it's life size, although it's still kinda small because I think they were about four feet tall. But it's small. It has an ape like face, but it has a big brain. And it stood upright, which was a big improvement for it. <laughs> so uh, it's uh, definitely, if they've reconstructed it properly, it's a kind of a missing link. Right. But uh, and, and a little point as she's bringing it in, I believe, he says that she was the one who did the reconstruction. 
which only feeds into what we'll be talking about more where, you know, she's the person in the background doing all the work and doesn't get any credit. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. someone who could put together this complex reconstruction, but she's just his assistant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we'll find later on, she goes off and does a little, little research project, which is a, a good few hours of work and nobody asked her to do it. She one did it under her own steam. So she's a, she's a pretty neat character who actually doesn't get a whole lot of speaking time. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, oh, well. So next we see after the conference is over, Roni has gone drinking at the club. I, I presume this is one of those British private clubs, you know, that gentlemen belong to. <laughs> and, uh, he meets an old friend there and this is the first appearance of Dr. Quatermass. A distinguished-looking gentleman. Dr. Quatermass has a team that he works with, and they're now working with the war office. And Quatermass doesn't seem to be terribly enthused about that. In fact, he says to Roni, you've got one thing to be thankful for. There's no (laughs) military value in fossil apes. Yeah, I think what we kind of see here communicated pretty quickly and efficiently is clearly... Quatermass like a normal scientist who's used to being in charge of his own stuff, and clearly the military has essentially come over and come in and taken over. And right. you know that we'll see him dealing with that. I think the other thing Roni did actually before he saw Quatermass in this was he was at this bar specifically to find a publisher and try to get him to help him out with publicity. And the guy, uh, you know, the guy says he'll see what he can do, but he kind of brushes him off. Yeah. Yeah, there was a fellow there, and I, I had been thinking that he was one of the men from the newspaper office, but I could I could be wrong, but, but he was, Roni did want him to help, help pub with publicity. So we see uh, that people are lining up at the dig site to get a glimpse of what's going on. It's been cordoned off, and uh, the access is restricted. Quatermass has brought Roni here just to drop him off. Quatermass is on his way to what? War office meeting uh, at Whitehall. I looked this up for American listeners. Whitehall is a road and a region of London, but it's also used as a metonym for the British government, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's a word that fills in for it. Like we will refer to the finance world as Wall Street, or we might refer to the government as Washington. You know, when, when you hear somebody from the UK say, Whitehall, they're uh, they're talking about the government, basically. I think uh, the word metonym is a new one on me. Okay. (laughs) So, yeah, that's uh, Wikipedia suggested that word. I didn't just pull it out of my (laughs) head. (laughs) So we find out in the meeting at Whitehall at the war office that Quatermass created a rocket program, and he had created it for peaceful research. But now the war office has some different ideas for it. They're planning a thing called a dead man's deterrent, which, uh, which Quatermass refers to as a monstrous conception. The idea of it is that in five to seven years from now, so uh, uh, 1958 plus five would be, say, 63 to 60, whatever, I don't know, <laughs> eight plus seven, 65. Okay. This yeah. is Americans trying to do math. <laughs> <laughs> They'll have bases on the moon that can shoot ballistic missiles. And these, these are not first strike missiles. Um, potentially they could be, but more importantly, they are last strike missiles. So 
If somebody else gets the jump on us in a nuclear war, we can still have the last laugh. Right. And I think uh, there's, so there's a guy named Breen here that we're going to get to know who describes that there's some kind of automated, sort of essentially an artificial intelligence that will decide to launch these missiles. So mm-hmm. I'm sure nothing could go wrong with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sounds like a pretty solid idea to me. <laughs> And I think part of the part of the debate here is that uh, so there's a minister in charge of this group of people, right? Minister mm-hmm. of the government, and Quatermass is saying, "Look, we have to weigh in and and say that policy wise that we think this is a bad policy." And the minister is essentially like, "This is above our pay grade. We're just here to implement what we're told to implement. You know, we don't give input on whether it's a good idea or not." So this is a basic disagreement Quatermass has with the group. Yeah, and the uh, uh, the disagreement is firm enough that the minister just asks him, have you a conscientious objection to remaining as the head of the rocket group? He's basically saying, you know, if you really don't like it, you can hit the highway. We've got your team now. <laughs> but Quatermass doesn't want to go that far, so he won't resign. And this Colonel Breen is seconded, which basically means just assigned to him as his helper. Uh, and also his watcher, probably. <laughs> well, the, the minister repeatedly sort of slips and says that Colonel Breen is taking over. and that, Oh, helping you out, I mean. <laughs> so it's very clear that the idea here is is they're going to phase out Quatermass one way or the other and put yeah. Breen in his place. And, and the minister is not very subtle about it. <laughs> uh, one thing on this dead man's deterrent. So I was thinking, well, maybe this is a common British phrase that's the equivalent of the American phrase of mutually assured destruction. Right, right. And so I did a search on it, but the only reference I saw to this phrase was to this episode of this show. So I think they may have made it up themselves. But interestingly, there is an actual plan that the U.S. contemplated in the 50s to detonate an atomic bomb on the moon in order to intimidate the Soviets as part of the Cold War. Hmm. So I thought that was interesting, and that may have played into this whole thing. Yeah, it could be. Huh, interesting. Yeah, it's probably just as well they didn't go through with that plan. <laughs> <laughs> Back at the dig site, we still have the paleontologists going to town here. One of the workers, Miss Dobson, she starts feeling woozy. She recovers after a moment, but not before she's gotten the attention of the other workers. They know that something's not quite right with her. And in another minute, once she's resumed digging, she finds something flat and smooth lying under the ground. Uh, it could be a chest of buried treasure, but, well, I guess in a way it is. But, uh, <laughs> but at the moment, they think it might be a pipe or it might be an unexploded bomb from World War II because the Germans dropped a lot of bombs on London and not all of them exploded. And I was impressed that they didn't just have them digging around. They did actually have like the little strings laid down and everything like people do when they're doing an actual archaeological dig, right? They're trying to do it. Oh, yeah. They segmented off the areas and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They did a, they did a, made it seem, what's the word? They had verisimilitude. (laughs) (laughs) So Barbara ends up reporting this thing to the police. And the police and army arrive, so now you've got three layers of, you've got the construction dig, then you've got the archaeological dig, and now you've got the bomb dig. <laughs> so there's there's a lot going on in this little pit here. The police and army are getting set up, and one of the policemen 
sees a face in the window of a house nearby that uh, is is not supposed to be inhabited while all this stuff's going on with the potential unexploded bomb. So the policeman goes to check on it. And I think, isn't it this point also where they put up kind of a pre-printed sign, you know, warning possible unexploded bomb, which again, mm. I think is kind of an indication of when you happen to have a sign like that around, it shows that, yeah, this is post-World War II England where there were unexploded bombs around and you kind of get used to that. Oh, uh, yeah. The people investigating the potential bomb, it's a mystery to them. One of them says, I've never seen a Satan with bumps. And, uh. <laughs> A Satan is a type of big bomb that the Nazis would drop now and then. But of course, this is interesting because, as we'll find out, you know, the word Hobbes is a reference to the devil, and this is a Satan bomb, and we're going to have some more things along these lines come up. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, and the, uh, yeah, I didn't actually, I didn't actually catch that uh, connection there, but now, yeah, that's it's good. <laughs> <laughs> The analysis microphone they use, they, they want to listen to see if it's ticking or anything like that. Um, and the, the microphone is supposed to stick. It's probably magnetic, but it doesn't stick. And uh, they don't think it's any kind of metal, which is kind of odd. Um, and no one during the digging, uh, none of the paleontologists noticed any apparent crater uh, from the bomb digging into the earth when it dropped. Yeah, I think they uh, called it an ingress, right? So you should be yeah. able to see the, where it popped in, yeah. Yeah, they were expecting that if it was a bomb, there'd be some evidence of its how it got there. But there isn't. <clears throat> but there seemingly isn't. So Roney, Dr. Roney, leaves to get a second opinion, and he drives over to the war office, um, which uh, apparently is a pretty pretty casual policy, but letting people <laughs> just come in and uh, interrupt meetings. Uh, well, these are he, scientists. They let scientists do whatever they want. <laughs> <laughs> well, Roni shows up just as Quatermass's meeting is letting out. Um, and he wants, he wants him to come take a look at the site. And Quatermass uh, has a somewhat clever idea. He, he has the idea of putting his new colleague to the test. Uh, find out uh, how they'll get along, and he invites him to come check out the site because because Breen has the military clout to uh, get the experts that he might need and so forth. Yeah, and, I, and what you're referencing the cleverness here, it's that um, since Breen's supposed to be sort of pretending to support him, he he doesn't have any choice but to help them out in this case. Even though his initial reaction is, "Hey, nobody officially has asked me. I can't do anything." Um, but since Quatermass is sort of saying, well, if you're my colleague, then you'll do this, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and after, after Quatermass talks to him for a moment, he seems, uh, he seems amenable enough. He actually, uh, you know, see, seems like, okay, let's, let's give it a try. What the heck? Um, you know, and this is, at least I, when I saw this scene unfold, I thought, well, you know, maybe they're going to play a little switcheroo on us. Maybe this guy who seems like the jerky, you know, uh, military guy, uh, maybe, maybe he's actually going to be more of a good military guy. Yeah. So, <laughs> Did you see the series Chernobyl? No. 
It's a really good series. I highly recommend it. And that basically happens in that. You have these two people essentially in this situation that Quaid and Ras and Breen are in, and they start out kind of at loggerheads, and they become partners, you know, making it happen. That's uh. not what happens here. But as we go along, <laughs> as you'll see, uh, I, you know, I'm kind of a supporter of Breen. I, I don't think he's that far off base. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he he does come up with a pretty wacky theory later on, but uh, at least to me it uh, seems that way. But we'll we'll see. Uh, so at at this dig site, um, you know, the, the, we mentioned that a policeman had seen a face in the window, um, and those people were evacuated from that house so that the unexploded bomb doesn't hurt them when it explodes. Uh, but they've come back because they left some clothes there, uh, and then all the rush of being evacuated, they left some behind and the police aren't supposed to let them in, but they, they say, okay, hurry up about it, you know, let them in. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> and, th and this is like a, an old lady and her husband who's pretty out of it. And we're going to actually spend a good deal of time with them. And I find them to be kind of amusing couple. I mean, you know. She complains about everything, but she's always taking care of her husband who just is totally silent and doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's mentioned a couple times that he's, um, he's, he's in some stage of senility, you know, and he's, he can still move around under his own steam, but he's you know, beyond that. He's, uh, uh, kind of out of it most of the time. Um, <clears throat> so we, we just see them going into their house and then, uh, Quatermass uh, realizes something rather interesting about this big mystery object uh, that may or may not be a bomb. Um, he realizes this was found below the five million year old skulls. And that being the case, it may be even older than the five million year old skulls. This is, to me, it's a bit of a plot hole because <laughs> I, I think Dr. Roney or any paleontologist in the world would have noticed this nearly immediately. Yeah, but if Roney had brought it up, then we wouldn't get that, you know, closing in on Quatermass's face as he says, five million years old. <laughs> and that's the end of, <laughs> end of the episode. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it gives us a nice little setup for a cliffhanger. So there is that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, which brings us to episode two, The Ghosts. So we start off, there's a brief recap of uh, the revelation that Quatermass had at the end of the last episode. And he tries to scratch this object, which at this point is still largely buried. I think he tries to scratch it and it's harder than diamond, he finds. Even though it's it's not made of metal, but whatever it is made of is harder than diamond. The army diggers find uh, what they call a kind of hole, but that's all we find out at the moment. Potter, one of the soldiers, and Barbara, who is Roni's assistant we mentioned earlier, they've gone off together in search of that old couple. You know, Quatermass had seen an old couple earlier, and that's the couple who had gone back to retrieve their clothes. And as luck would have it, they're just about to leave their quarantined house with the clothes they retrieved from it. And Potter and Barbara question them, and the wife says that they lived here during both wars, World War One and World War Two. So they, they have a lot of history in this neighborhood. 
she mentions, apropos of very little, that the house next door has been rumored to be haunted for around 30 years, which ends up being somewhat relevant. Yeah, I think the other part of this discussion and the reason Quatermass had wanted them to talk to this couple was to see if they were aware of a bomb falling during the war. Since they lived there at that time, they would have known if a huge bomb fell. And right. you know, she she says, no, there was just a couple of fire. She calls them little fire things or whatever. It turns out to be like incendiary bombs. But yeah. uh, no, no big giant right. bomb. Yeah. So if this thing that's buried in the pit is a bomb, uh, the lady doesn't know anything about it. But it is fortuitous that she mentioned that haunted house because that actually plays a little bit of a role coming <laughs> yep. up here. The army diggers, they speculate that the hole they found is a hatch that caved in when the bomb dropped. And inside that caved-in hatch, they find a lot more dirt, but they also find another skull, another ape-man skull. And this is the best-preserved one yet. And then uh, a Geiger counter is detecting radiation above normal, just on a small area of the object. So... In what we are hearing nowadays is an abundance of caution. <laughs> the scientists are ordered to clear out. Only, uh, only the very necessary essential people can, can stay uh, while there's radiation around. While all that's going on, Quatermass approaches the haunted house, and uh, the door's unlocked. Presumably it's been unlocked for 30 years. <laughs> and uh, a Bobby enters... Saw him walk in, presumably, and he starts talking to him. The Bobby was a kid in this neighborhood in 1927, but he remembers the fuss about the house. So that's 30, 31 years. This movie's 1958. So he remembers there was a fuss about the house uh, back then. Uh, there were tales of bangs and bumps. There were even sightings of things. Mm-hmm. And as they're looking through the house, they find that the kitchen has very large, very strange <laughs> scratches on the walls, like like some big animal's been clawing at it. Well, and I, this is almost like Godzilla size, right? And I, I think the Bobby <laughs> is like, oh, kids probably did it. <laughs> like, uh, Quatermass is skeptical that kids would have been able to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Quatermass asks if the Bobby has the address where the couple is staying, that old couple that was leaving earlier. And the Bobby's about to give it to him when they hear a sound from another room. I think it may be from the kitchen that they had just left. But when they go to investigate the sound, they find nothing, and eventually they leave. But still, the the show is planting the idea that uh, strange things may be afoot. Mm-hmm. So, Quatermass goes ahead and visits the old couple. Uh, he wants to get more information than uh, Potter and Barbara were able to collect from them. As far as I could tell from this scene, he doesn't really get a lot of new information. The woman that the couple's staying with says the disturbances were worst in 1927, and they diminished after. And she heard the sounds herself, but they could never find the source. And that's really all I gleaned from this scene. But I think a lot of the point of this scene is that the woman they're staying with is reading their tea leaves and trying to you know, determine their future. So she's, she's very superstitious and presumably Mm -hmm. does this for as a living or something, since she seems to be very proficient at it. 
And she and Quatermass have a bit of an argument about whether he's a skeptic or not. So I think it's just sort of saying, okay, you know, we have this haunted house, we have this stuff going on, and now we have the person who is the psychic versus the skeptic, you know, and that's kind of the setup here. Yeah. But we, unfortunately, because I kind of liked her, we don't see the psychic again. So yeah, uh, as you say, this this scene didn't do a whole lot. Yeah, yeah, it would have been fun if they could work her work her in later in the show, but oh well. So at Roni's office, presumably somewhere within the Nicklin Institute, Quatermass pays him a visit, and Roni reveals that he isn't terribly fond of Breen. He says it in a very, very polite way. I think he says something like, uh, he's the sort of person I just can't, just don't take to, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> but the upshot is he doesn't like him. And, and I think uh, he's kind of apologizing to Quatermass because I think he assumes that they're colleagues and that Quatermass is okay with him. But, you know, Quatermass is like, well, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and we find out that Roni has been working on a device as a hobby. He's not just a paleontologist. He's also an electrical engineer. And he's been working on a device he calls the optic encephalogram. And the idea of it is to see what the subject sees in his mind's eye. So if you're if you're just looking at something, you might see whatever the person's looking at. But if he's hallucinating, then you might see the hallucination. So, you know, whatever's in your mind's eye is what the device is supposed to show you, but it doesn't actually work. Yeah, I'm sure that won't come up later. <laughs> and, of course, <laughs> it also reminds me of the prisoner or so. Perhaps he's the one who invented the technology they used in The Prisoner when they did this. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. It could just be a big continuum. I'm sure probably we're going to start working out a big integrated theory about Doctor Who and The Prisoner (laughs) and all these things tie together. (laughs) Yep. The device doesn't work yet, but uh, it's sitting there on the shelf just waiting for, for someone to give it a little tender loving care. And Roni explains to Quatermass how he estimated the ape men's age. He fitted them into the evolutionary record. You know, he looked at known creatures that we have fairly plausible dating established for, and he figured where these guys would fit in there. And that's how he calculated an age for them. Which also brings up the point, or uh, which also informs the viewers, that these creatures seem to be natural creatures of Earth, however spaceship-like this thing in the ground ends up being, uh, and it will end up being pretty spaceship-like. However that may be, the ape-men themselves seem to fit into Earth's history. So, there you go. Mm -hmm. And I think Roni at this point says, you know, if you're thinking that they're not from Earth, put that out of your head. (laughs) No chance that's the case. Yeah. Which actually turns out to be sort of true. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a little little um, asterisk there. <laughs> so Colonel Breen telephones Roni's office. He wants to speak to Quatermass. He is letting Quatermass know that he's ordered some digging, eight to ten feet more of digging, to find out what all this device actually is. And he also has gotten a report saying that the radiation they found that caused them to evacuate the scientists, the radiation is harmless. The radioactive elements present 
suggest the presence of a nuclear reactor, and their apparent age is five million years. So it does indeed make sense that this object was underneath the five million year old skulls, because it's at least as old as they are. Mm-hmm. So after this eight to ten feet of digging order, we see the object mostly uncovered, and it doesn't look much like a bomb or a missile. Half of it is covered with these large, round discs. Actually, now that I think about it, it's a uh, Looks kind of like the lower half of a Dalek, except with much bigger <laughs> circles on it. That's true. It could it, it could be a giant Dalek on its side, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> could be. And it appears the material may be some kind of ceramic, which is uh, would explain why it hasn't rusted. But Quatermass finds rust, and he finds copper salts in the soil around it which suggests to him that the object probably had metal parts, but they corroded away over time. Yeah, and, and he kind of uses that as proof to Breen that, you know, there there was mechanisms on this ship. Right. So there's yeah. something I want to mention here that I might insert earlier. Sorry, I was a little distracted while I was looking it up. We were talking about uh, universe, a uh, unified universe. So hmm. are you familiar with St. Elsewhere? I've heard of the show. I don't think I've ever seen an episode. Yeah, so this is a pretty old now, probably 30-plus-year-old medical show that Denzel Washington got known from. So that was uh, his, I think, big break. But the reason I was thinking about that is that in the show, there's a minor character who's an autistic boy who's the son of one of the doctors. And at the end of the show, um, there's some whole weird thing with this kid. But basically now there's this whole theory about how this autistic kid is the connection between all these different TV shows and that there's a bunch of different TV shows that are all just his imagination. <laughs> <laughs> and you can sort of connect them by the different actors that are in them and everything. Ah, so, yeah. All right. <laughs> Very good. Well, we'll have to come up with something like that for Doctor Who. Although probably somebody's <laughs> no, trust done me, that. people do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, we've we've established that the parts of the ship or the object, uh, we're not yet sure what it is. Parts of it have rusted away. And Barbara returns. She's been out for a little while. And it turns out that she's been doing research on newspaper reports about the haunted house. You know, the reports that would have been printed back in 1927. Because uh, Quatermass seemed interested in it, so she thought it'd be nice to go find some information for him. Yes, and and getting back to the whole way of how Barbara is treated, just a moment or two before, Quatermass had asked where she was, and Roni says, oh, I think she's getting her hair done or something. (laughs) (laughs) And it turns out that, no, she's been off doing this research for them. Yeah, yeah. And it's really, this is... Probably one of Quatermass's lower moments in the show, uh, as I can recall, because she's done at least several hours of work, you know, doing some research, getting all these clippings and getting photocopies and whatnot. And he really just blows her off. He doesn't even say like, oh, that's, you know, good job. Thanks for going to the trouble. Maybe he just, he says, I don't remember what he says, but it's basically saying he doubts there's much in it useful in there. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's bad form, I think. <laughs> yeah. But, but he does in an idle moment, he leafs through them and he notices that one mention or one article mentions there was work on a new tube extension, which would be a subway extension at the time of the hauntings. 
And that actually will play into a theory that he has later on. Mm-hmm. So back at the at the dig, or just outside the hut, there they were in a hut at the dig, the paleontologist's hut. Uh, outside of that, they're finding there's a closed bulkhead inside the object. Uh, it's like a a door that's sealing off part of the interior. So the first step is to get the interior clean, and the army men bring in a sprayer to wash it down. This is moderately noteworthy because when we see the water washing away the dirt on the bulkhead door, that's probably the inspiration for the credit sequence we see at the beginning of every episode where there's dirt being washed down a long slab of something. Probably comes from this scene right here. Mm. Dr. Roney observes, once the bulkhead door is clean, he observes that the markings on the door are an occult symbol, a pedicle, and he's 100% wrong. It, <laughs> it isn't a occult, well, 50% wrong, because he's right about it being an occult symbol, but it's not a pedicle. Then at first, it's hard to tell. You can see, you know, depending on what the lighting and camera angle is like, at first, I could only tell that it looked kind of like a bit of a Venn diagram with overlapping circles. But later on, you get better views, and it turns out that this particular occult symbol is actually the seed of life. It's a central circle with six circles overlapping it. So, and they, they, they never call it that during the show. It's always the pentacle or the occult symbol, if they refer to it at all. But if you know that it's actually called the seed of life, then that may add a new, new little facet to the uh, rest of the story. Mm-hmm. But we'll get get to all that down the road. <laughs> and suddenly there's a horrified scream. While they were washing the bulkhead, one of the army men was in the other end of the object, and he saw a figure. He says he saw a figure, and it went through the wall. And he's freaked out, and that's the end of the episode. <laughs> And I don't want to cast aspersions, but that was a very feminine scream. <laughs> and it was not. It was. It was not a manly scream. <laughs> there was. It, it, it reminded me when I watched it. Actually, there's a in in the Ghostbusters video game that they made. Uh, they just remastered it recently, huh. but they actually have that same joke where there's a. They hear a woman scream, and they go running to see what's happening, and it turns out to be the hotel manager. <laughs> anyway, who, who is a man, of course. I mean, it, it could, could, could have been a... Right. Never mind. <laughs> anyway, on to episode three, Imps and Demons. So Breen says that the soldier who screamed... His name is West, and Breen says, I just had claustrophobia. Meanwhile, Roni's investigating where the soldier was working, and he sees cabalistic signs on the walls. And we don't actually get a look at these signs, so we'll just have to... They're probably something something in that vein. Who knows? <laughs> I'm not going to give him a hard time about the whole pentacle thing. <laughs> Honest mistake. Breen orders digging another three feet down on top of the eight to ten feet that he's already requested. And meanwhile, West, who is still very obviously shaken by whatever he saw in there, West says the figure was little, like a dwarf. And this 
provokes a memory in Barbara and she reads from one of her 1927 clippings, which says the vision was small like a monkey or dwarf and went through the walls, which is exactly what West had reported. She asks him about the, those hauntings and West says he's never heard of it. The, this is the first he's ever heard of it. So it's doubtful that he was inspired by those events. There are diggers out there, the army diggers with picks, uh, who find more hard, smooth material, just like the large object. And Breen thinks it's the hatch cover that came off and let all the dirt in. And it turns out he's right. And this, this hatch cover is screw-threaded, kind of like the back of a watch. You know, the, the threading is around the, the, uh, the circumference of it. And the speculation is that it was opened from the inside. Uh, so it's not clear how they told, how they deduced that, but uh, they, they deduced it. Right. And so you've had one skull that was inside and preserved and one skull that was outside. So, you know, presumably somebody opened the hatch and got out. Yeah, which could be those eight men who were mm. found above the ship. So, yep. Although uh, they must have they must have died very shortly after to be found, you know, right on top of the ship. Yeah. Well, we find out later this was like a swamp at the time that that would have happened. So it may be that they sort of got out and drowned or or something like that, or got you know sucked into the mud or something. Yeah. The 1927 news clippings. They're reading through them more carefully now that they realize that Barbara's recitation matches up with West's report. These clippings mention earlier reports of hauntings in Hobbs Lane before 1927. There were 17th century reports. <laughs> and while they're discussing that, we see a digger using a, a blowtorch on the hatch for five minutes, and it doesn't even warm it up. It's safe to touch as soon as he removes the blowtorch. And Quatermass, being a rocket scientist, he sees the possibilities in this, uh, it could be a heat-proof casing for fast travel through the atmosphere. And in fact, I saw a documentary uh, some years ago now, but the space shuttle had these ceramic tiles mm. on it that mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if they were cool to the touch after they went through the atmosphere, but they would absorb tremendous amounts of heat. So the ceramic theory that they're talking about in this show in 1958, it ended up, you know, back in the late 70s when they were developing the <laughs> space shuttle, they, they used this heat-proof ceramic. So Yeah, and Quatermass says here that rocket scientists have always been looking for this specifically to be able to get through the atmosphere. And I know that actually those heat panels, especially early on, on the shuttle were a total pain. You know, they would they would fall off and then, mm -hmm. it, you know, you have to worry about putting them all back on and having them secure enough so that when it goes through the atmosphere again, it'll be okay. And, you know, it's not, it's, it, so he is actually talking about a real problem that even into the 80s and such, we were having trouble solving. Oh, yeah. So that's um, probably a, a good bit of scientific research on the author's part or mm -hmm. scientific general knowledge, maybe. But uh, he called that one pretty well. Breen and Quatermass determine that the bulkhead that has the pentacle on it, it is probably another threaded hatch cover like the one they found away from the ship. 
if they could drill a hole in it, they might be able to unscrew it. You know, that might give them some leverage on it. But since this material is harder than diamond, their normal drills aren't going to cut it. Uh, so they're going to have to hire a discreet civilian contractor who has an extra hard drill bit. And Breen isn't happy about this idea because he doesn't want to bring a non-military person into a secret project, and that will sort of <laughs> play out a little bit here. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and now we see the newspaper editor's office. There are three guys on the newspaper staff, uh, and they're suspicious. Or three guys in this office. There's probably a lot more on the staff. Three guys are suspicious about what, whether what's being found at the site is really an unexploded bomb. And one of them happened to get a photo that morning, took a photo of Roni going into the site with a man that they don't recognize. A fourth guy comes in. This man's name is Full of Love. He comes in, and from the photo, he can identify Quatermass is the guy who went in with Roni. And, and Full of Love is a, is a real sur surname. I, I looked that up. <laughs> and in addition to identifying Quatermass, Full of Love also identifies Colonel Breen. He's seen him and other newsy things in the past. So between these two men of science and he's interested in what's going on there, he decides he's going to take the reporting assignment for himself. Yeah, and, and it seems like part of the deal is he does seem to be kind of a big-name reporter, and he says something, um, I don't remember what he refers to them as, but it seems like it's his boss or his publisher has told him to go and find something good to report on. So mm -hmm. he was just sort of randomly coming in to see if they had anything, and they did. Yeah, worked out well. And he requisitions a little spy camera. That's his term, a little spy camera. And I don't think anywhere in this whole show he does anything but just hold it out in plain sight and take all yeah. the pictures he wants. So. <laughs> but I guess it is easier to carry if it's little. So yeah, but I have to imagine in reality it could maybe take one or two pictures. I don't know that at that time something that was, you know, literally the size of a piece of lipstick or something uh, would not have been able to hold a lot of pictures. I might be wrong. Nah. That, <laughs> you just have to roll the film real tightly, I guess. <laughs> so the civilian driller with the hard drill bit is in the scene now at the pit, but it's turning out he may not be as discreet as Breen would have hoped. <laughs> he talks about another secret job where he had to drill through six inches of steel Presumably a tank or ship or God knows what. Right. And, you know, that was secret. And Breen is like, good thing you don't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> when at this point, it seems that strange things are afoot. We get a few little isolated incidents in rapid succession. First of all, Potter looks at his hand curiously after touching the big generator, and it turns out that he has just a little touch of frostbite, or what seems to be frostbite. Meanwhile, the men are drinking a lot of tea, although it is getting colder, so that may not be entirely mysterious. Also, they are British, so I don't know how you would <laughs> distinguish that. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. But at least one of the people there was commenting on it, so I mm. thought, I'd, thought I'd wrap it into the the sequence of strange things here. And then the other strange thing that happens is Barbara finds a small dead bird, which again by itself isn't all that mysterious. I mean, birds do die sometimes, but 
Yeah, there's a couple things like that woman earlier who had a little bit of a headache and this dead bird where they're just there, they're just part of it, but they don't they don't bring it back or anything. It you know, it's just right. part of the tapestry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just sort of sort of setting the mood and whatnot, I guess. <laughs> so as the digging commences, most of the non army folks are set out sent outside the barrier. One of the men blows a whistle. He's probably signaling that it's all clear to start digging. But whatever reason he's doing it for, there's a strange, loud electronic echo just sort of in the whole air around the site. Although Breen doesn't seem to notice it, and he he orders switching on the generator. And once the generator's on, they can try using the drill, and the drill bit has no effect, even though it's a super hard drill bit. And then they try again. On the second attempt, it still doesn't seem to work, but the electronic noise returns, and this time it's loud and painful, and it lingers a lot more than it did Mm -hmm. the first time. And eventually, as a result of this, Colonel Breen falls to his knees and upchucks. (laughs) <laughs> um, we don't actually see that. That would have been a step too far for 1958. But, you know, he sort of gets on his knees and his head's just out of frame. And it's pretty obvious what he's doing. He's Yeah, and they don't barfing. say anything about this. But you have to imagine, given his, you know, military bravado, that this is something very embarrassing to him. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a, uh, <laughs> yeah, not not one of his prouder moments, I guess. When you got to puke, you got to puke, I guess. <laughs> Quatermass, as a result of this electronic noise, he's dazed and almost incoherent. He goes to fetch some Aroni's brandy because I guess it couldn't hurt. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> well, as as we'll see and talk about later, it turns out brandy or whiskey is sort of the universal cure in this world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the sound returns yet again. And outside the barrier, Barbara and others can hear that noise at the site. She's concerned for the men on the site. But then Full of Love shows up to find out how things are going. And Barbara gives him the cold shoulder. She's not interested in his press nonsense. (laughs) Quatermass stumbles up to the barrier out of the site, and he comes through. And he asks Roni about those occult signs that he had noted in the object. You know, we have the uh, the seed of life up front, and then we have the unseen cabalistic signs in the rear. So there's a, there's a lot of occult signs in there, and he asks Roni about them. Whatever Roni tells him must be, uh, must be interesting, because Quatermass sends word to Bree not to try anything else until he returns, <laughs> until Quatermass returns. Potter, meanwhile, takes his men back into the site. The sounds seem to be over for now. And Barbara seems worried for him, so there may be a little bit of a budding romance here. It's not not entirely <laughs> clear at this point, but uh, it does seem that way. Yeah, I guess that's possible. I didn't really pick up on that, so I don't think, you know, they don't make a big deal out of it if that's the case. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think various times throughout the show they they end up in scenes together and I, I think it was meant to suggest that they were getting interested in each other but <laughs> who knows. At the library, Aroni and Quatermass are doing some research of their own. 
following Barbara's lead, I guess you'd say. They found a book in 18th century English. It's called A True History of the Hobbs Lane Ghosts. It tells them that in September of 1762, there were noises, there were spectral appearances. On one occasion, men were digging a well when the noises came. Mm-hmm. Quatermass has a little phrase describing what he thinks of these Hobbs Lane ghosts. He <laughs> thinks they were phenomena that were badly observed and wrongly interpreted. Yep. And uh, as we'll find out, that's maybe not badly observed, but wrongly interpreted at least. Mm-hmm. And this is the part where we find out about the discrepancy between the two signs, the Hobbs and Hobbs. <laughs> doesn't work as well without the spelling there, that the 1B versus the 2B signs. And Hob, they mention here, was an old nickname for the devil. So the original, uh, original name was the H-O-B apostrophe S, and it was probably named for some... Uh, diabolical shenanigans that appeared to be happening. Mm. And then Full of Love arrives, uh, taking pictures with a spy cam. I mean, he's just really sort of taking pictures of a room in a library. So I don't know <laughs> what the purpose is, but mm. oh, well, he knows what he's doing, I guess. He just kind of showed up to be nosy, and uh, that's he takes his pictures, and then we're back at the dig site. Breen wants to get digging again. He doesn't care what Quatermass said about, wait till I get back. So, by golly, he's going to do it. It turns out that where the contractor was trying to drill a hole into the bulkhead, suddenly a hole has appeared there that wasn't there before, including wasn't there when he was doing the drilling. But the hole seems wider than the drill bit, and it doesn't look drilled, but rather melted. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure they really ever go very far in explaining what happened here, but somehow the drill bit triggered this melting process, I guess. Yep. Melted a hole most of the way through the door, but not all the way through because when they insert a pencil, it stops before going all the way through. Potter asks Barbara to leave the dig site now, concerned for her safety and all. Another one of those little things that made me wonder if there was a romance going on because she's the only person he asks yeah that's a good point i do recall that and also i think maybe at that same time she was wrapping his hand in a bandage because his hand was Mm, bothering him for so so i think you're right i think that romance was sort of sitting there and i i just wasn't paying a lot of attention to it yeah yeah i don't i mean there you never get any real fireworks or anything out of it (laughs) but it's just kind of a low-key thing i think well and later on and now you're reminding me and and so don't forget there's a point where they're all running away from the pit and i think he's dragging her away so Mm, yeah you know yep yep breen seeing that the hole has magically melted in the door he tells the contractor to pack up his drill and get it out of the way and then there's a hissing sound and suddenly the hole has now gone all the way through to the other side of the door so it's been just sort of gradually melting for the past few minutes, presumably. At the library, uh, Quatermass, Roni, and Fullalove have found another book. This one is in Latin, and it's about the events of 1341. It describes imps, demons, and foul noises sent by the devil. <laughs> the phenomenon 
are the phenomena, because uh, they were plural, uh, they only affected a group of charcoal burners who had arrived in the area recently. And this uh, makes Quatermass think. And he observes that they'd have been felling trees if they were making charcoal. And all these reports they've been rating, the well digging, the tube construction, the tree cutting, these are all things, they're all disturbances in the ground, as Quatermass yeah. calls them. So that seems to be when something disturbs the ground, yeah, some weird things happen as a result here in Hobbs Lane. So they're, they're tracking down some leads anyway. Back at the dig site, Colonel Breen has a little device for peeking through keyholes. It's maybe the size of a pen light, and it's just presumably it has a tiny lens on both ends, kind of like a mini telescope or something, but per, or but yeah, or periscope or telescope. Periscope, yeah. yeah. But he's whatever it is, he's able to stick it through the, the keyhole and get a murky view of what's on the other side. Uh he says there's nothing bulky, no explosives, which I'm not sure how he could be that certain <laughs> of that, but uh they'll all right. Go for it. Uh, he mentions that when it opened there was a rush of air inwards and this was the hissing sound they heard when the when the hole finally melted all the way through. And Quatermass is particularly interested in that. He wouldn't have expected the air to go inwards. Right. Which it, it, it means that the pressure in, in the other side of the door was lower than the pressure outside of it. Quatermass looks through the little peaking device and he says, My God, it looks like an eye. <laughs> Breen asks him, What do you smell? Quatermass is corruption, decomposition. And Quatermass mentions briefly that Full Love had sneaked into the site with them. Apparently he didn't feel inclined to make a big deal about it. And uh, Full of Love is uh, in Roney's hut now, on the phone to the newspaper office. Meanwhile, the army men get the bulkhead door to move. I don't know. How would they do that with the one hole? They probably stick a pencil in it and pull no, it out. Well, he has like a pipe. Um, he has a big, long pipe that they're trying to use to leverage it. Oh, okay. Okay, I didn't didn't remember that. But I, I had been envisioning before they got to that point, they had been talking about trying to unscrew it, and I had been trying to picture right. how they were going to do that, and I never... Well, it's not clear how the pipe that. would work either, but, you know... <laughs> <laughs> Especially since that's a pretty little hole, so, you know, yeah. But it's their their way to get it open. So. Yeah. yeah, if it works, it, it works. So they get the hatch open, and inside, first they see some really weird webbing hanging all over the place. And then, even more disturbingly, they see a few creepy dead insect creatures, uh, which are the, the size of large dogs. Yeah, they they look like uh, well, no, answer isn't right. But I don't know what they look like. I mean, kind of grasshopperish. Yeah, right? that's probably a good one. And and the I I like the what they do here, which is one of them falls. <laughs> yeah, a little jump scare. There, yeah. And <laughs> then Quatermass says demons. <laughs> <laughs> yep, and that is our that's our exciting conclusion to episode three. So episode four, The Enchanted, and 
We're back at the hole with, filled with insect-like creatures. Roni picks one up, and he describes it as being like a crab, which it really doesn't look like a crab. It does have carapace, yeah. but someone else describes it as a locust, which seems more accurate. It does have three legs, like a tripod, and an antenna, like a beetle. <laughs> yeah. I'm just not sure what this thing is. <laughs> and it, at this point, they might need to call in a fourth team of experts. I, see, I don't <laughs> think the bomb squad is equipped to deal with this. Yeah, I, I think the thing is that Quatermass and Roni being scientists, they probably feel like they don't need um, anyone's help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They've got it. <laughs> and there's a, there's a, this thing that they push in the show, uh, which I think is quasi realistic. So I'll get into this a bit, which is they are concerned that instantly everything in there is going to decompose, you know, essentially mm -hmm. it was in some form of vacuum or close to vacuum previously. And after millions of years, it's being exposed to the air and they're literally grabbing it and rushing it out so they can uh, spray preservatives on these things so that they won't decompose. And they, they, they talk about the smell of decomposition. Yeah. Well, I think it's an issue. I don't think it would be happening in literally seconds. Yeah, but. and they uh, especially if 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 it was you know I mean like humidity I think will accelerate decomposition. And they they mentioned that it was bacteria that suddenly triggered it. Uh, like there it was previously maybe a bacteria free <laughs> environment. Although how they'd manage that, I mean. If they don't, assuming they don't have any gut flora or anything like that, I, I don't know. It's, it probably doesn't bear too much close looking into. <laughs> I like what Quatermass says. He blames it on the filthy, rotten London air. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Which actually was probably not in great shape at the time. <laughs> but this did remind me of, do you remember from decades ago when they found that guy frozen in the ice, a 5,000-year-old guy up in the mountains I remember hearing and about Italy. It. It's a really interesting story. I read the book at the time. I actually had to look up and see if I have a documentary or something about him at this point. And, but this, this was a criticism of the local scientists, which was that people said, oh, they didn't know what they were doing and they didn't properly preserve the body once they found it and everything. And of course, the scientists defended themselves and said they had. So I guess, yeah. you know, I guess uh, what we're seeing here is realistic. Now that guy is now has a name. Uh, I don't exactly know how to pronounce it, but it's called Otsi. It's an mm -hmm. O with umlaut above it. Otsi, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I just read that they found 19 genetic descendants of him. So mm -hmm. he, he may have actually been, you know, planted here by aliens in order to mm -hmm. uh, change the human race. <laughs> Could be. You never know. <laughs> so the other thing we see is the hole is crisscrossed with some kind of webbing. And this is one where I'm going to say that it's a really good production. They did a lot of really good stuff. This webbing does not look very impressive. It's just sort of some ribbons or something that someone put up. Yeah. It's, it, it looks, it kind of reminded me of like, uh, when you see a, uh, sailing ship depicted with tattered shredded sails, it kind of yeah. reminded me of that sort of thing. And Quatermass theorizes that this webbing is like a nerve system as if the ship itself were perhaps alive. So we'll probably come back to that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then, um, Brain really freaks out when he sees that Full of Love, the reporter is with Quatermass. He yells and screams and insists that the reporter be taken away, even though, as Quatermass points out, now that they know this is not an unexploded bomb, whatever it is, it's no longer really a military operation. 
And in fact, they should be focusing on informing the public about what they're finding. Hmm. Breen, you know, being our classic military guy, is not swayed by this argument. <laughs> and he has the reporter taken back to the barrier. You know, who knows? Maybe he's violating the Constitution or something. Yeah. Although, I, I, in, this, in this case, I'm inclined to give Breen a little bit of a... Uh, a little bit of leeway because, uh, you know, it's something, well, if it's aliens or whatever the hell these insect things are, it's, it's something big that's probably going to change the world. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's, that's something that, you know, the military may want to manage in some way. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I agree with you. As I said, I'm generally a breeding supporter in this story. And, and certainly they don't know it. You know, they've just discovered bizarre aliens. They don't know what's going on. Maybe a live spaceship, whatever. So, yeah, I think you want to do a little more investigation before you start having, you know, half-baked articles being sent out to the public. Not that we experience that these days. <laughs> now, we had seen earlier some people coming to the hut nearby with these little coffin-like wood boxes to take out the aliens. Now that the alien insects that they took into the hut have had preservatives sprayed on them, these guys are taking out the boxes that have the aliens inside and walking, and presumably they have to walk through the crowd. And Quatermass points out quite reasonably, you're not going to be able to keep those secret for long. <laughs> <laughs> and we're back at the Nicklin Institute. And there's a newspaper guy hawking papers right outside. And I, I like his entrepreneurial spirit because there's all these people lined up. They want to get into the museum. The museum shuts the door, says nobody's coming in. And the newspaper guy says to them, you can't get in, but you can read all about it. And he's, so he's selling papers to them. It's a good deal. I will yeah. say, I'm just not one of these curious people who's like, oh, there might be an unexploded bomb. I'm going to go stand at this barrier and try to see if I can get into the pit. And I'm going to go <laughs> to this museum and see if I can get in. I'm not quite sure who these people are. <laughs> and inside Roni's lab, they have one of the more damaged insects mounted in a standing pose so they can examine it. And... Quatermass seems offended that Roni is currently classifying the aliens as insects. <laughs> and Roni says, mm -hmm. call it an arthropod. It includes all insects, crabs, spiders, except that none of them have three legs. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I'd be curious these days if we know of any three-legged ones, but it does seem a little problematic. I don't, um, think, I've, I don't think I've ever heard of a three-legged insect or arthropod. There's a series called The Tripods, which is um, based on some books by an author I liked quite a lot, uh, John Christopher. He's a British author. And they did a couple of series based on the books, and this was a criticism made of those that because they have these big War of the World-style tripod aliens mm. uh, or robot thingies, and people were saying, well, you can't really have three legs. It doesn't work. I think people have actually done computer models now that show it can work, but this is going way down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they also note the insects have antennas shaped like horns. And Quatermass points out, yes, horned demons. Mm -hmm. Like the pictures they'd been looking at in those old books. And he says, as if that image was somehow projected into men's minds. You know, so the idea being, I guess, that we developed our idea of demons because of these aliens. You know, they somehow had... Right. caused us to visualize this. And Quatermass also points out that it looks like a gargoyle. Now, I, I'm i not sure I agree with him there, but okay. Uh, and he says gargoyles are carved into the walls in a dozen countries. Maybe it's a race memory. Yeah, I, I don't think, I mean, there's, there's sort of the generic gargoyle that you picture, which is kind of gremlin-like, but then there's also, uh, there are a lot of variations on them. So mm -hmm. I think 
It's a fair point. Could be a Garkov. <laughs> <laughs> and he says this may be a race memory. And my first encounter with this concept was in the original novel of Planet of the Apes. It's the first movie it was based on. And at the end of that, because the writer wanted to tell a whole bunch of story that there was no way that anyone could have been there, you know, it was sort of the whole history of how we got to the planet of apes. So he just mm -hmm. had these two people who are very sensitive, you know, mentally sensitive or whatever with a race memory, start reciting the race memory to explain the story. So, no. <laughs> you know, I feel like, uh, well, I, I think it's better in this story. I mean, it, you know, it's not just an expository trick like it was in that book. Yeah. Roni then talks about ancient cave paintings showing mass similar to the insect alien. And he says, you know, I think these are old friends we haven't seen for a long time. <laughs> so Quatermass realizes the insects look like they came from a low gravity planet, perhaps dun, 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 Mars. <laughs> and he <laughs> says he remembers his disappointment as a kid when somebody proved that Martians couldn't exist. <laughs> And uh, later, they're looking at an ape skull that was found, and it has a larger brain than expected. Roni says somehow they developed this extra capacity, and Quatermass says, or been developed. Mm. So Quatermass is one of those scientist characters in the story who, you know, makes these leaps, <laughs> you know, that are necessary for the story. I'm not sure a person would really suddenly out of nowhere have a realization like this. Yeah, although... Uh... Although, if he does realize that these were basically uh, cargo in the, yeah. in the ship. Yeah, and that's what he explains next, right? He says, look, we have this sealed front compartment with the insects, and then presumably in the rear, there were about half a dozen apes. And from this, he sort of determines actually the whole thing, right? <laughs> so he kind of figures out the whole story from this. It's, it's Again, I think it's a pretty big leap, but okay. <laughs> and he says, if we found that our earth was doomed a thousand years from now, what would we do about it? Before he can sort of explain what that all means, it turns out there's a big crowd. I don't think he explains it at that point, does he? No, it comes later. Okay. Before he can explain what he means by that, uh, it turns out there's a big crowd that's developed outside the Institute that wants to know what's going on. Again, all these people who just sort of, I guess, don't have a lot to do. <laughs> and Quatermass is called to the war office immediately. So in the war office, the minister is not happy with Breen or Quatermass. He's, he's dressing them both down for this story getting out and making waves. The prime minister's office is trying to get him on the phone, and he's, you know, pretending he's not available because before he talks to anyone, he wants to get a few things straight. Yeah. And now Quatermass lays out the obvious implications of all these things we've seen. It's clear <laughs> that the insects took the apes from Earth, genetically modified them, then brought them back to take over the planet for the insects. <laughs> There's a QED, you know, much more likely than a German rocket. <laughs> and this is why I, I again, I kind of support Breen and, and the minister and a lot of these things. It's like, are you supposed to believe that this was a German rocket of, with some weird things about it? Or are you supposed to believe that ancient insects, you know, genetically modified us, et cetera? <laughs> Yeah, although they still got it that it was under the skulls in the five million year yeah. old layer there. So I mean, I, I, I think uh, I think that was you. You have to really come up with some convoluted explanations to yeah. Get yes, but that, that means you have to trust the scientists telling you those things are five million years old, right? These are military guys; they have no reason to yeah. believe that that's that's the case. 
And no, I like what the minister says here. <laughs> says, you realize what you're implying, that we owe our human condition to the intervention of insects? <laughs> <laughs> and Quaid and says, yes, I suppose I am. Uh, and now Breen offers his own theory, which doesn't involve alien insects or Martians, only Germans. <laughs> they realized that they were losing the war. So in a last ditch effort, they sent over an experimental V weapon to produce exactly the effect it has produced thanks to you, but it was a little late for their purpose. <laughs> and he explains that these creatures are just tricks. They're like a mermaid at a circus, you know, made up of odd bits of flesh and bone. And he says, it's the oldest trick in the business. And I'm like, well, is it? <laughs> so I, I, I guess it could work. Like say, say the thing falls to earth and then there's some other bombs and some buildings collapse on it. So it's buried in the debris and yeah, no, you could, yeah, it's <laughs> possible. It's possible. Although the creatures, if the creatures are tricks, that should be, uh, that should be detectable through some various tests too. <laughs> well, the minister is convinced. <laughs> Ingenious. Yeah. Yes, yes, it has that black Wagnerian imagination. Methodical people, the Hun. I like the common sense of it. So. <laughs> it works for him. Yeah. And so now the minister calls his superiors, lets them know it's all over. It was all a gigantic false alarm. Case closed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll see how that works out for him. <laughs> and we're back at the pit, and the crowd is told that it's all over. Everything's being shut down. They disperse grumpily. And a young guy says to his date, it's too late to see a flick now. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, the, the driller guy is annoyed because, you know, his equipment is in there and he's had to wait around all day into the evening so he can get it back out and everyone else leaves and he starts disassembling his equipment inside the ship. And then he hears some banging and then some kind of commotion, like things running around or something. And then his wrench starts sliding across the floor, totally not a magnet underneath. <laughs> and uh, the electrical cables start flailing around. And he sees some kind of image, and he runs from the ship. And he runs past Barbara, who was coming down to get her notes from the hut. And as he runs, his posture is really weird and, and, and clearly sort of that of an ape as he's running along. Mm-hmm. There are some uh, two by four wooden planks floating in the air as he's running by. And even though it's, you know, some kind of strings holding them up, they look pretty good. Yeah. And then he runs through the military folks and keeps going. And he ends up outside a late night food truck, approaches it, and cups and dishes start flying out and smashing on the ground around him. So he heads for a church where we hear a choir practicing. He collapses outside in the gravel. And a priest happens to come out and stand over him. And then we see his hand in the gravel and the gravel around the hand starts undulating. Mm -hmm. And it's the end of the episode. Yeah. It's an interesting little effect. Yeah. 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 It's very well done. Very compelling. And episode five, the wild hunt. I was not aware of this previously. It turns out the wild hunt is a thing. So looking at Wikipedia. Oh, Ron, shame on you. You, you never played The Witcher 3, did you? <laughs> no, I didn't get to that no. one. I have a whole long history of The Witcher. We'll get into it in a moment. <laughs> yeah, so wild hunts typically involve a chase led by a mythological figure escorted by a ghostly or supernatural group of hunters engaged in pursuit. 
And seeing the wild hunt was thought to presage uh, some catastrophe such as war or plague, uh, or at best the death of the one who witnessed it. And sometimes people encountering the hut might be abducted to the underworld or the fairy kingdom. So I guess you got a whole history there. Oh, yeah. I think also, now it's been a long time since I read these books, but uh, my I think it was my fourth grade teacher recommended this series of books about a character named Terran Wanderer. Lloyd, Lloyd mm-hmm. Alexander, I think, was the author. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think later in the series, The Wild Hunt plays a role in it. One of them was made into a Disney movie, actually, The Black Cauldron. Ah, okay. But, uh, yeah, I think The Wild Hunt shows up in those books, but it's been yeah, a Yeah, I saw The Black Cauldron time. a long time ago, to with that again. And yeah. there's some interesting history about that movie, so maybe sometime we should, should watch it. Oh, yeah. So, one thing I will admit, now, the last couple episodes, honestly, are actually pretty exciting, especially as they go along, but the beginning of this episode is not, right? We've just seen all this wacky stuff going on, everything's getting intense. And I don't know, the first 10 or something minutes of this is just people sitting around telling each other what's already happened, even though we've already had a recap of the episode at the beginning. (laughs) So I'm just going to skip all that stuff. And finally, we get back to the church. And the driller guy that we saw in the gravel is with the priest who found him in this room that is creepily bottom lit. So there's clearly like a fire and all the light is coming from the floor. And Mm -hmm. it's very effective for making this whole thing creepy. And yeah. the first shot we see in the room is a gargoyle on the side of the wall. So <laughs> making that whole point about gargoyles. Yeah. The priest gives him some tea or maybe it's whiskey. We don't know to drink. <laughs> and then Quatermass and Barbara show up. And the priest tells them that the guy is named Sladden. It looked as if he was seeking sanctuary. And the priest is sure that he had been in contact with spiritual evil. Quatermass talks with Sladden about what happened. As he asks questions, Sladden freaks out. He starts ranting. You know, they were coming alive, hundreds and hundreds. I was one, jumping, leaping. And he's just getting so upset that he's that he has to be restrained in his chair. And he mentions the sky. And Quatermass uh, intuits something and says, what color is it? Blue? <laughs> and he says, no, dark purple. And mm. that'll become important in a bit. But now, before we can find out more, there are weird sounds in the room. Clothes are rustling around and then a couple of fireplace implements fly across the room and the priest says you should have left him alone he's not free of it yet and Quatermass again intuiting what's going on here he says perhaps it was always in him perhaps it's a faculty that's dormant in all of us an inheritance if you like Mm -hmm. and the priest and Quatermass debate and Quatermass finally says I believe what he just told us was a vision on Mars five million years ago So again, pretty good at intuiting things and I guess moving the story along. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And Quatermass wants Sladen to come to the dig site the next day to reproduce what he was doing so they can record things and see what happens. And the priest doesn't want him to do it, but Sladen is is up for it. But he does ask the priest to come with him. Which is kind of nice, you know, that the priest tried to do do some good for him and, you know, yeah. just a little heartwarming. Well, thing. and I think it's also to Sladen's credit that, you know, he's terrified by this and yet he's willing to try to help figure out what's going on by going back into this situation that oh, did yeah. this to him. And we're back in the Nicklin Institute. The military has put out the word that all this was all a German hoax. Nothing to worry about. The media is reporting it that way immediately. Not that we'd ever see the media do that. And <laughs> meanwhile, 
Roni is working on getting his optical encephalograph working, you know, that, that device that he had said could see what people were seeing. And right. he really talks it down. He last tried it six months ago. It didn't work yet. And he's made a couple of these comments. Again, it's, you know, sign of the times, right, that our, one of our heroes would say this. Earlier, he referred to certain people on the planet as savages. And now he says the original aim was to use it on primitive types, the trance conditions they fall into so easily. <laughs> so, mm. Now, I guess he's made some adjustments to it. And full of love, the reporter is there. He's sitting in a chair. And Quatermass, again, questionable. <laughs> he doesn't bother to get full of love's consent. He just plops this machine onto his head so they can test it out. <laughs> and they turn it on. And they're able to look at a monitor and see what full of love is seeing. So it works. Now we are at the pit the next day and Quatermass has the encephalograph hooked up to him. And I'll just note that <laughs> even though he's the one using it now, he wasn't going to test it on himself yesterday. <laughs> so nah. Make of that what you will. <laughs> he tells Sladden to cut the generator to emulate what happened the night before. And Quatermass assumes that when the current is cut, the hole will react and they'll put out some kind of imagery that he'll be able to pick up and then that this encephalograph thingy will pick that up. Mm -hmm. So Quatermass goes inside the ship, they cut the generator, stuff starts happening and we hear sounds and everything and Sladden is suddenly attracted to walking toward the ship and the priest pulls him back. But Quatermass isn't seeing anything special and he feels like, okay, he's not the right person. And then it turns out Barbara is also walking toward the ship. She's attracted to it. She's in a trance-like state. So they put the device on her and she sees intense things and, and tries to describe them and she collapses. Fortunately, they have whatever she saw on tape. Hmm. So we now switch to the war office and Quatermass is showing uh, the people in the rocket group Barbara's visions. And he tells them it's a race purge, a cleansing of the hives. And what we get is this kind of impressionistic view of a war between insects on Mars. They're clearly decimating each other, you know, like they're blowing up and everything. One mm. of the more disturbing or pathetic images is one of the insects is sort of trying to crawl away from the carnage and you know he's probably not going to make it. Mm. Um, it's clear, you know, they were doing the best they could to to emulate all this. They didn't really have the ability to do the special effects in a compelling way. And I thought about it a bit and I realized there's actually a lot of similarities to the future robot war we see in the beginning of Terminator mm. where you have the robots standing on the skulls and all of that. And I think that mm -hmm. effectively, and, and I'm curious, maybe the Terminator was inspired by this, but this was clearly mm. the kind of thing they were trying to do with mm. this sequence they show here. Yeah. I mean, it's short of actually having like uh, marionettes or Muppets or something like that to, <laughs> right, for right. each individual alien. I, th I think they did the best they could with what was available. Yeah, it, it yeah. works all right. And Quatermass tells them it's a ritual slaughter to rid the colony of mutations. Again, he's making a lot of these sort of intuitive leaps. He says, you find the same thing among termites and wasps on Earth. And... The concern he expresses is that the ship has shown both the ability to project this memory and to redirect human energy, you know, getting the driller guy to run off like an ape and getting Barbara to walk into the ship and that sort of thing. Right. So he's worried about what this could imply. And the minister points out, and again, I'll say quite reasonably, that 
Roni's machine was originally designed to pick up hallucinations. So that's all this is. It's just a hallucination she had. It's her imagination, and she's a woman, and she's overwrought. <laughs> <laughs> and the minister tells Quatermass, I believe you were wrong in this matter, ridiculously wrong. And now I don't know what the urgency is, but he's going to allow the public into the pit tonight, immediately, along with radio and TV personnel. <laughs> okay, I guess it's really urgent, you know. Yeah, he's he's going all in on this uh, this Nazi trick business. <laughs> but it would be one thing. It was like, okay, tomorrow morning we're going to open the pit. It's like, no, it's going to be like ten o'clock at night, and we're going to open it and have everyone come. I guess <laughs> you know, if you don't want to go to a movie, come to the pit and see what happens. <laughs> And so uh, hordes of presumably bored people <laughs> are at the pit waiting to be able to get in. And there's all sorts of press. And we see BBC trucks and BBC camera equipment. And I'm curious if this is the old trick done sometimes that when you have shots involving equipment like the broadcast equipment, that you actually just show the equipment that you actually have there for the show. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> uh, and sometimes, you know, just put in personnel who happen to be part of the crew. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's the case, and I forgot to ask Toby about it, but wouldn't surprise me a bit. Yeah. And they have a set of large electrical cables that have been threaded from the broadcast truck, and they bring them into the ship, <laughs> because why not? I guess they want to put lights in there or something. Yeah. And in the meantime, while this is going on, Breen is holding a press conference at a little table outside. And he says the Germans are cooperating and searching their records for what this might have been. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure they're really busting their humps to get that information <laughs> dug up. They're probably just sitting there laughing at us, <laughs> laughing at the UK people, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, most of the press is kind of eating it up, but Full of Love pushes his way in and he's hostile to Breen. You know, says, how does he know that this is true? And he gets brushed off. And then there's a woman of the press, and I love this. She says, don't you agree that this propaganda hoax you've uncovered, that the Nazis had no idea of the true British spirit during the Blitz? <laughs> I like her spirit anyway. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oddly, though, Breen doesn't, like, jump on that. He's actually perplexed and doesn't know how to respond to it. And in the meantime, Quatermass rushes up with his own question. <laughs> Is Colonel Breen an imbecile or a coward? <laughs> I'm voting for imbecile. <laughs> and as they argue, there's some kind of explosive sound from the ship, some electrical flashes. It turns out the cables fell inside and electrocuted one of the workers. And so they clear folks away and they bring the, the people who are inside out and, you know, one of them is dead. And as they clear the folks away, we see that inside there's some kind of brain-like membrane that's pulsing. Presumably the brain of the ship now powered by that electricity. And it's the end of the episode. Yeah. And I think it looked to me, and I may have just misinterpreted it because, um, you know, I didn't watch it in super high resolution, <laughs> and all that, but, uh, it looked to me like that scene of whatever membrane was pulsing. It was in one of those roundels in the walls of the ship, you know, the mm. round, big, big round circle things. It was like one of those had this, this was glowing and lit up like mm. that. Yeah. It's sort of hard to tell the, um, and, and honestly, they never really explain what this is. We'll see it again, but you know, you just have to make your own guesses about, about what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, I sort of guessed that it was like the ship, you know, has been getting access to intermittent amounts of electricity, you know, so it's probably, 
been storing some of that and, you know, that's probably waking, waking up some dormant systems in the ship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Could be a lot of things. Yeah. No, I think that's the implication. (laughs) Yep. So now we have episode six, Hob, which again, just means devil. (laughs) We'll find out. I should mention there's an old expression, uh, playing hob where, uh, you know, it's, it just means screwing things up. Like, you know, the new, the new regulations played hub with my plans for the new year, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Uh, it's a cute little phrase. I think when I'm going to try and start using it more. Yeah. I wasn't familiar with that one. <laughs> so they're dealing with that electrocuted worker. And while they're doing that, Barbara looks inside the ship and she sees flashing And we don't see what she sees. We do see flashing coming out. She also presumably sees that membrane thing that we saw. Mm -hmm. But when Quatermass looks in, he doesn't see anything. But he does, Quatermass does insist that Breen evacuate the area. And Breen, of course, refuses. So (laughs) Quatermass takes matters into his own hands like this. And he addresses everyone in the pit. My name is Quatermass. If that name means anything to you, leave this place now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna, I should I should do that at work someday. <laughs> My name, if that name means anything to you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and everybody will stay right at their desks. <laughs> well, they take him seriously and people start clearing out. And Breen says, well, the official schedule is going to continue. You know, it's like 10 o'clock at night. I'm not sure what all was on the official schedule, but okay. <laughs> um, and Breen tells Quatermass, you're a tired man and need a long rest. So he's kind of making it clear that, you know, he is now officially like taking over the rocket group. Yeah. Which was the plan all along. Oh, yeah. And he is supposed to have a TV interview. So I guess that was on the schedule. And he's annoyed because the interviewer ropes in Quatermass so that they can have a conversation on TV. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, while they're getting set up, another man goes over and he, I've seen him before, but I don't recall exactly what his role was. Yeah, I, he was he was around a little bit earlier, and I think I think when he when he looks into the ship, it seems like he's almost kind of dazed or like. Well, um, he's seeing the same thing Barbara was, right? He sees yeah, the flashes again, and you know whatever's going on in there. But I, I I thought maybe I'm wrong, but I thought he was kind of like his act of wandering over to the ship and looking in was was like not entirely of his own volition. Could or be. Not, yep, I'm not could sure. Be. And now we switch to some people in a pub and there's actually a whole lot of people in the pub and, you know, they have a lot of extras in this show in general. And they're watching this interview with Breen and Quatermass on TV. But as the interview is just getting started, there's some weird sounds behind them and something is going wrong. (laughs) And then the TV goes blank and then up comes a message. Sorry about this breakdown. (laughs) (laughs) And everyone in the pub laughs and goes about their business. But I, I, thought that was kind of neat you know it's a it's much more informal than uh technical difficulties please stand by uh, sorry about the breakdown <laughs> so back of the pit papers are flying around lights are pulsing people are screaming breen is staring at the ship and now he approaches it and he clearly is in a trance-like state and full of love approaches the ship and starts taking pictures and then we see that Breen is sitting at a table and staring at the ship and Quatermass tries to move him, but he pushes Quatermass away. So he just, he doesn't seem to have any control over himself at this point. And there are large crowds and again, amazing number of extras fleeing the pit area, at least dozens of people. Mm-hmm. 
And Quatermass is feeling odd, and he starts wandering the streets with the crowds. And he reaches that pub that we'd been seeing earlier, and everyone in there panics and flees, and they knock over everything. And Quatermass goes into the pub, and Roni comes in. And uh, since Quatermass is sort of out of it, you know, Roni does the only treatment you can do and gets him a whiskey. He has to look <laughs> around to find a bottle that hasn't been broken. Yeah. Meanwhile, Barbara uh, somehow has found herself in that haunted house near the ship, and there's a soldier in there, and she gets possessed and starts toward him to attack him, and he knocks her out. He didn't have much choice in the matter. Yeah. And Full of Love is back taking pictures of the ship, and a bunch of debris fall on him and knock him out. And then back in the pub, Quatermass attacks Roni. Um, and, and Roni's trying to defend himself and kind of gets Quatermass to stop. And then, and then Roni reminds him of their past fishing memories and mm. gets him to, um, and, and talking about their fishing memories and getting him to remember the name of some guy they were with or something sort of brings Quatermass back to his humanity. Yeah, he's talking about a big pike they caught, if I remember right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he's trying to get him the name, the type of it or something like that. Yeah. And Quatermass says, I wanted to kill you. I could do it without moving. I could tell that. He says, I wanted to kill you because you're different. I could feel it. You are not one of us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he had a compulsion to purify the species. And he says, this is the wild hunt. And now we get, you know, kind of interesting. Uh, we're seeing a U.S. news anchor. And he's telling people that London is out of contact, but there's a pilot in a, in a plane, you know, over London that they're going to contact. So he's talking to this pilot and the pilot's telling him what's going on and everything's burning. And we see, you know, this vast burning landscape of London. Mm -hmm. And then the co-pilot passes out and the plane crashes and... We're back at the ship in the pit, and it's now a glowing, melted husk. And really freaky is there's smoke coming out of the ship, and the smoke above it forms into this giant ghostly insect head. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a creepy thing, just uh, like, a, you know, after the attack on the World Trade Center, there was a photo that went around that was supposedly showing the the face of Satan in the smoke right. rising from right. the buildings. And uh, this is kind of similarly creepy. <laughs> yeah. So Quatermass and Roni also go to the haunted building near the ship. Uh, I don't know why everyone's quite ending up there, but who knows. <laughs> Roni has a sudden insight this time. He points out that the devil's traditional enemies are iron and water. And so they have the soldier get this long chain with a grill attached. And Quatermass tries to take it to the ship, but he can't do it. But on his way, he encounters Breen, who's just sitting there. But now he's a mummified husk. And when <laughs> Quatermass touches his shoulder, he just falls over. Yeah. I was hoping he was going to be a good guy, but it didn't work out. <laughs> so Quatermass fails. You know, the mental thing's going under too much for him. So Roni comes and picks up the chain and the grill and goes to the ship and throws it in. And he kills himself in the process, but he has the effect he wanted. And the ship is suddenly gone. The influence is gone. It's all over. Yep, that's whatever happens to the ship. You know, the reaction that causes the ship to vanish, that Roni is caught up in that. So he's yep. gone too. It almost looks like he's maybe, there's like some salt or, you know, some debris left on the ground. 
mm-hmm. from all that. And so our final thing is Quatermass is in a TV studio doing a live talk and he gives a speech about, you know, how war has been bred into us, but also about how some people are still Martians, but some people have evolved beyond it. That's why some people did not respond to what the ship was doing. And some people did. And, you know, that we have to continue this process and we also will probably find more of these ships. And I'll, I will have that speech be the thing we go out on at the end of the episode. Well, this makes sense. I will mention, and we'll talk more about it when we talk to Toby, is, you know, I think that the last couple episodes, especially the last episode, are really very intense and they're very visceral experiences in a way that you probably can't tell just from us describing it. So <laughs> it's definitely worth uh, watching mm-hmm. if you want the full experience and you can find it. Oh, yeah. So with that, we will return to Toby. Well, Toby, when you're consumed by race memories of ancient Martian wars while watching the story, it's like no time has passed at all. (laughs) (laughs) So, Guy, especially since you're sort of newest to this, uh, what's your reaction to this story? And also, this so we're talking six episodes, three and a half hours, I think, total. So Mm. it's kind of like a really long movie. Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. I uh, I liked it quite a bit. I enjoyed uh, the pacing of it. It's a, it's a slower pacing than we've we've been watching The Prisoner uh, for the past couple months, and that's you know very condensed. Uh, mm. And the, every episode is just packed full of stuff. And Quatermass in the Pit gives it more of a chance to sort of unwind and let you wonder what's going on. And uh, you know, it's uh, I I. I just enjoyed it overall. The cast was good. They had some surprisingly good effects in it. Like, I, I loved the model that they created for the, or not the model, but the full-size thing they created for the uh, for the spaceship, for the object. <laughs> yeah, it was, I was quite pleased with it. I, I really liked it. I'm very happy about that. <laughs> My feeling watching through it was the first few episodes, like, okay, I understand, you know, this is, the first to do a lot of this and it's kind of, you know, okay. And and then the last couple of episodes just kicked into gear. And with that last episode, I literally, after it was over, just had to get up and walk around because it was really intense and really Mm. stressful. Mm -hmm. You're actually effectively seeing the end of the world or almost the end of the world. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me of, um, I told guy about this. There was a movie from a decade or two ago called The Rapture. So, you know, there's a religious concept that at some point this rapture will occur and all the good religious people will go up to heaven and everyone else will be left behind. And this movie kind of goes through this woman who seems sort of insane and is really intensely believing in the rapture. And she's a telemarketer and she keeps screwing up her job by spending all of her time talking to people about the rapture instead of what she's supposed to be selling them. And then at the end of the movie they actually show you the rapture and it's really intense and the world is coming to an end sort of thing. And that's what I felt like here. It's like, well, I wasn't expecting this. You know, I'm expecting for a 1950s TV show for them to look out the window and say, boy, really bad stuff's happening out there. I'm not expecting for them to actually show (laughs) it. (laughs) Mm. It's a a huge production. I mean, for, you know, for the time, the amount of the size of the cast, the amount of extras, the amount of filming, Mm because I mean, you know that none of the stuff, all the stuff that wasn't on film was live. So mm. not, not only is it an amazing and big production, it's one that's done, you, they're doing it as you're watching it, you know. Right. 
there's one shot that it sort of pans slowly across London at night and looks like mm. throughout the city, there are fires burning all over the place. And it, and it looked like it was archival footage of some actual disaster that had gone on there. Some, you know, yeah, maybe. that's, that's stock footage from the Blitz. And of oh, course it's, I, it's, I was wondering if that, uh, huh. and it's, and it's making that great parallel, of course, because it's about, yeah. you know, our propensity for war, but I think what's clever about it is it's not going war is bad or war is hell. It's going war is within us. And if mm -hmm. we are to be civilized, we must damn and, and explaining that drive and explaining it sort of biologically, the insects cleansing the mm -hmm. hive of mutations and, and, and difference, but yeah. also it, it explains it science fictionally. It's, you know, it's the Martian race doing what they do and it's explaining it in terms of the society that it's, it's playing to and, and their recent memories of a war that was all about you know, genetic perfection and, uh, you know, and all So, I mean, hugely clever, I think. Oh, yeah. One of the things I've noticed, you know, watching through Doctor Who and things like this is that it's so clear that the UK had this different experience with the war than we did in the US. I mean, obviously we were involved and obviously World War II was a big deal to us. But you watch through Doctor Who even, you know, like in the Daleks, when they come across a little box, their first assumption is this might be a bomb. Mm. And here we have the whole idea, this is an unexploded bomb. Well, in the U.S., that whole concept is not there. We've never been invaded. We've never had, you know, unexploded bombs laying around that you had to worry about. And it's just so clear that was part of the culture through that time period. Yes. Well, the, and again, that's the three quatermass heroes. The first one is about we're sending stuff into space. What if something, what if it comes, what if one comes back with something? The second one, is about Nigel Neal looking at loads of secret government buildings and going, we don't actually know what's going on in those. Hmm. And the third one, Quatermass in the Pit, is people keep, you know, there's all these building sites regenerating London and there's all, there are unexploded bombs. So what if something they thought was an unexploded bomb is actually something else? So again, all of them are rooted and very modern. Again, when television was doing, you know, Hedda Gabler with three cameras, you know, or, uh, or anyone for tennis or all that sort of stuff, this is really modern and bred from the time, created out of the world that, that it was writing about, you know, and yet mm -hmm. totally fantastical and more fantastical than, you know, anything else that was on telly because sci-fi was, was not really a TV genre at that time. You know? Right. Yeah, it was generally thought of as a sort of a, uh, I don't know what term to use, it, it was a lowbrow form of entertainment as, yeah. as literature. Com know. Comic, it was compared to comic books, you know, yeah. the, the, the disparaging newspaper stuff would be, oh, this is for, this is for people who like, you know, sick comic books or whatever. Right. So I'm curious about the model of the spaceship. First of all, I mean, just production wise, they did a great job with all that, right? And having this pit mm. and seeing the dirt go down and there must've been a lot of space they were dedicating to this thing because it's full size of uh, spaceship. And I'm curious, uh, your thoughts or what you've uncovered about that, because what surprised me is for such a big production and all they put into it, they actually made the spaceship relatively simple. It would have been, you know, I think tempting to like put all sorts of doodads on there or make it, you know, make it more alien. And it's pretty simple. Uh, well, the, but that, that's partially explained in the, in the script because they, because uh, that's the bit of the spaceship that isn't metal. The rest of it's corroded. Right. So they say, right. you know, that the, 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 all the other instruments have, have, have either been shed in flight or they've corroded away. And yeah. this is this is the sort of organic bit of the hull that we know has, you know, has then that it turns out has this special thing. But I think also the designer was a, a chap called Clifford Hatz, uh, who um, I, I got to know fairly fairly well, and he had this very clever idea that what what he did was 
most a lot of the pit stuff is done at Ealing on film. All the really muddy stuff with all the water that you can see, you can mm. that's on film. But then for the stuff that's live in the studio, uh, what he did was every week instead of digging down, he 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 raised the walls on the side of the pit, so it's the same floor, mm. and he just makes the set mm. a little bit higher to no, give the I'm impression. Creative. So okay. so that was that was the the smart move, which is why in between episodes two and three, I first saw this on a video where all six episodes were edited together, and and between episode two and three, suddenly the spaceship goes from being very dirty to absolutely pristine clean <laughs> right, because right. it jumps from one week to the next. What did he say about the, the sh- he wanted it to be, he said when he was designing it, he wanted to, uh, uh, it to be uh, like a sort of carapace of something and slightly mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. So, sort of a suggestion of something slightly insectoid to give a clue of, of, of what's inside. But, mm-hmm. but also it had to be practical. They had to be able to get inside it uh, and, and it couldn't be too big. So I think that sort of long cylindrical shape, which is not actually unlike the TARDIS, the inside of it mm. is not unlike right. the roundels. You've got the roundels. In, in the yeah. TARDIS. yeah. <laughs> I didn't yeah. even think about that when I was looking. Yeah. Uh, no, that's great. I have a couple things on this, but I, a guy m- made a note of something that I'd kind of noticed, but he looked into more, which is that they say, oh, this is a pentacle. You know, so there's a, a drawing that's um, inside the spaceship and mm. It's not really a pentagon. Guy, what did you find with that? That image, you know, it's like six circles overlapping a central circle. Uh, it is an occult symbol, but it's called the seed of life. And I thought that was uh, interestingly appropriate given the theme of what the ship was there for. Yes, I've tried to get to the bottom of that because, yes, it's, it's as you say, they say it's a pentacle uh, and, and, and it isn't. And Nigel, I've been through Nigel Neal's notes and he made huge long notes, not only on the science, but also on the, the mythology and witchcraft. So he would have known and it wasn't like his script is taken away and then stuff is produced without him knowing and he can't do anything about it because he was on set. You know, the, mm. a lot of that detritus being thrown at the characters is thrown by Nigel Neal because they had a, <laughs> they had a crew of about six or seven, you know, so everybody's doing everything. Clifford Hatch, the designer, is in it twice. Um, uh, mm. He's in it at the beginning and at the end. So I, I don't know if they just, they liked that symbol better because it, it fitted with the circles. Or aren't, although I think a pentagram, you know, with the, with the double triangle would have, would have worked just as well. Or whether, mm. whether they just wanted to say pentacle because it was a better sound, because it, it's a great line. This is one of the Kabbalistic signs they were used right. in ancient magic. It's all beautifully <laughs> evocative <laughs> stuff. So I, I, I wonder if they just thought the audience might not know and so just went right. for what sounded and looked best for them. But I, it, I honestly don't know. It yeah. seems like there's a bit of a lost opportunity, as Guy's saying, because if they had mentioned it as Seed of Life, that would have totally fit mm. into the story, right? Yeah, absolutely. And a seed of a new life on Earth that, uh, yeah. that originated on, on Mars. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing I was curious about was whether there was any reaction to the religious and science things here. So in effect, this is giving a science fiction explanation to the history of religion on earth and you have people like mary whitehouse now maybe you can again maybe explain to our <laughs> listeners who mary whitehouse is did any of these people have an issue with uh, this no that's interesting i mean mary whitehouse was a self-appointed moral guardian of uh, the british sensibilities mm. she she wasn't she was she wasn't doing this in the in the 50s but uh, you know the type because mm. they are they have she was always going after dr time who, memorial. So she was yeah. she was always going after dr who i could see it in my mind's eye she'd say. <laughs> um and and didn't like sex and violence on on television but from a very christian background as well you know she would she she cast herself as the sort of you know, Christian housewife and mother of two, sort of, you know, that, that, that encapsulation of, you know, what, what values are. Um, hmm. but, uh, f- but I think because it was so new, 
that there were people who were appalled by the horror. Hmm. Um, but I think because it was such that the horror and the sci-fi were so new that I think the subtext was not, they, they didn't get as far as the subtext hmm. in a way. This, this is the team that had, uh, I mean, I think they'd shocked with 1984 as well. But again, it was more, it wasn't, it wasn't generally political objections that people had, although there are, there are some. It was more that people were not used to seeing the case of 1984 rats, you know, threatened as a torture technique. And, mm. and in Quatermass in the Pit, and I think episode four goes out with the legend, before we begin episode four of Quatermass in the Pit, we would like to warn viewers that in our opinion, it is not suitable for children or for those of you who may have a nervous disposition. So, um, so this, you know, television is so new and, and it is in your home. You know, you used to go out, people would go out to the theatre, they would go out to the cinema. The idea that you would have anything apart from the radio, you know, in your house to have pictures. Um, so this, you know, this is a brave new world. And, and so, so for the time, even what we might see as some of the mild peril was, was pretty haunting. But that, you know, the wild hunt in the final episode of where London is essentially ethnically cleansed by hordes of mad people you know is i mean i think it's alarming now so then so i don't think i, I don't think there was enough there was a churchman who wrote to the bbc religious affairs person about 1984 but again it wasn't that it was particularly against god or it was just that you know the violence was unholy and not the sort of thing the bbc should be doing but people weren't delving into the subtext although i can understand why you you'd think that they might but i think it was yeah. such a new medium that uh, they didn't even get that far. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. One thing I just found a little funny throughout, and this may just be the time period, not even a region thing or anything, but every time someone had some problem, either mental or physical, the answer was to immediately give them a whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> even like the world is literally coming to an end and Quatermass is freaking out. What do we do? Go find a whiskey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's like a very British, it's a very British way of dealing with things, you know, <laughs> if in doubt, have a drink, you know, um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not sure we'd have had an empire if we hadn't all been hammered, you know, it's such a ridiculous <laughs> idea. I think, I think, so, you know, just that night went on a bit late and somebody said, should we try and take over the world? And everyone went, yeah, you know, you don't do that sober. <laughs> Overall, the themes, I and mean, we've touched on a lot of them, but what is again, surprising to me compared to most science fiction, certainly the fifties, right? Where it's just like, okay, mm. giant ants or whatever. And there's a thing to that. Right. And there's a fear like, of, like when we would have a giant ant movie, it's like, well, we're afraid of radiation and what it'll do to the world, but that would be about it. Okay. There are giant ants and they're now taking over here. You know, we've got race memory, ancient aliens from Mars who took <laughs> apes and genetically modified them and brought them back in order to create a new species that, you know, it's like, this is really complicated stuff, especially when you can't like videotape this and watch it again. It's, it's extremely dense. I mean, an example of that is uh, because it's live, um, the, the way that, you know, they would film two actors in a, in a set, they had three cameras, they'd, they'd, they'd have two actors and two, they'd have two cameras on the actors. And then the third camera would be lined up on the next set. But if the actors from scene one are in scene two, you've got to give them time to get from set <laughs> one to set two. And there's an example of that in episode one where they just have a close-up of a radio, which is padding. But on mm. that radio, the reports are about the nuclear, uh, the, the nuclear conference being a stalemate, uh, race riots uh, in Birmingham. All of the stuff on the radio is the subtext 
of mm. the piece. Yeah. It is about nuclear energy. There's radiation there, but it's five million years old. It's radiation mm. generated from ancient Mars. Mars is the god of war. And these creatures come down to Earth and experiment at us because their planet is dying and they want to carry on their way of life. And the only way they can do that because they can't live here is to impregnate us with their with their sensibilities. And, and they are insects and they do this cleansing of the hives, which again, brilliantly, they tie in with the wild hunt, which is the phantom ride of witches or devils. So it's not only tied in with us and tied in with the insects, it's also tied in with the, with the witchcraft and folklore, which, which gives it its horrific edge. That's what makes it more than just science fiction, because the devil uh, and, and horned beasts, which are somehow scarier than laser beams and little green men. So that's mm. where he gets the horror from and the black magic. But then uh, you know, he, he claims the sci-fi by going, yeah, these are Martians. Martians is the biggest stereotype and the biggest hokey thing ever. But what he does is these were the line is uh, the, the word is worn out before anything turned up to claim it. So it's like, going, yes, that is where life began in this. But, but the, it's all ancient history now. So he's even going, yeah, I dare you to say this is hokey sci-fi because I'm I'm claiming it and I'm acknowledging that. But I'm saying it's something <laughs> much more deep, deep and ancient. But then all of that that he does ties in with the idea of what it is that makes us warlike uh, and, 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 and sort of, as I say, not saying war is hell, saying war is an inevitability because of the way that we have been experimented upon. And if we are to, if we are to call ourselves civilized, we have mm -hmm. to put away those urges that lie within us. And I think that's a very powerful uh, message, mm -hmm. but a really cleverly wrought one within the script and within the production. Hmm. Yeah, totally. There's also what feels to me like a very British trope. It was a little bit in the U.S., but I think much more in Britain at that time, which was that science fiction was shaped around the idea of something happens. Let's go talk to the brilliant lone scientist to understand what happened. And then the story will revolve around that scientist. So Arthur Conan hmm. Doyle's Dr. Challenger you know, and, and all of those stories is a great example of that, this, and I feel like this kind of then evolved into the doctor because, you know, that's sort of the starting point. Yes. And, and, and he's, and he's a maverick in his own way. He's not sort of, I mean, Andre Morel is much more closer to Doctor Who in, 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 in terms of his performance is quite debonair and he wears a bow tie. The previous two Quasimasses, because on, on television, Quasimass was never played by the same person twice because the originator of the part, Reginald Tate, died between Quatermass Experiment and Quatermass 2 just before they started production on Quatermass 2. So then they, they, they shopped around for an actor and, and everyone was either booked up or on holiday and they got a, a decent actor, John Robinson, but nobody was especially happy, not even, not even Robinson with him doing it. And then Andre Morel, who'd been their first choice in the first place, mm -hmm. but had been reluctant, I think, to do, to do sci-fi, but was a close collaborator to those guys. But Quatermass in the first one, he's a sort of, he sends up the rocket without telling the ministry. So he's, yeah, he's a bit of a maverick and the, and the ministry have to come down and he has to explain to them how rockets work, which is very useful for the people at home. Um, uh, and then in Quatermass 2, his own stuff, his own plans to build a colony on the, mar uh, on the moon has been turned against him because actually the government's been overtaken by aliens and they're using his designs to, to house themselves here. It's wonderfully paranoid, Quatermass 2. Um, so he's quite unhappy and there's a suggestion there in one of the scenes that he's, his wife is dead and he's, and he's terribly sad, partially because I think John Robertson was quite sad. And then, and then yeah, and then Morel, at the beginning of this, we find him being pushed out of his own creation, the rocket group, and the rocket group is being taken over by the military. 
by Colonel Breen, and they're setting up mm-hmm. essentially Ronald Reagan's Star Wars project, uh, you mm-hmm. know, 30, 30 years early. And that is, again, a subtext to what, what the Martians try to do. They try to take, you know, what, the nice things that we're doing and, and use them as for warlike means. And that's exactly what the British government, Nigel Neal, hated bureaucracy. So that's why the minister is such an oaf. And that's why Colonel Breen, that the military figure is this embodiment of sort of cold, clinical. And it's no wonder that he is the one that is most prone to the Martian influence. Whereas mm. Roney, who's the intuitive scientist who likes digging around in the dirt and is uh, also, note, uh, Jewish, as, mm. uh, is, mm. is the one who is different, who is the one who is immune to the to the Martian inheritance and therefore is the one targeted for the destruction because, as Quatermass says to him, because you're different, you weren't right. one of us, you had to be destroyed. So, I mean, mm-hmm. he's tack- they're tackling some big things here. Yes, yeah, so Quatermass is a kind of outsider and he's also quite sad. But yes, the Maverick scientist, I think that is a very British thing. And I mean, you look at the, the portrayal of class in these things, and, you know, all the working class people all talk like this, don't they? And they're a bit <laughs> thick and they, uh, oh, yes, sir. And they all call, you know, they all doff their cap a bit to the scientist. And, and oh, they're all a bit gossipy, aren't they? Um, and, and, and that kind of dates it as much as anything. Right. But that's in Orwell as well. You know, the, the working class characters are sort of slightly arch, you know, stupid, gossipy types. But he still, he still gives us nice characters. I think the character of Sladden, the drill operator, is one of the best characters and wonderfully oh, played yeah. by, mm-hmm. by Richard Shaw, who's in Doctor Who. He's in the Space Museum and Frontier in Space and Underworld ah. uh, and, and gives a superb performance. And that character mm-hmm. was nearly called Paddy O'Flynn and I think would have been a comedy Irishman. Uh, and thank <laughs> God they decided to go with Richard Shaw instead, who'd worked with um, Rudolf Cartier before, and I think gives a superb performance. Mm-hmm. Okay, you'll be seeing some of that in the, in the near future. Uh, another, and I, I definitely want to talk about some of those characters. Last thing, just on the story in general, the other trope that I noticed, maybe of things of that time, is that the ending speech that you go off with. So the thing from another world, that movie ends with this kind of famous speech where a journalist yeah. ends saying, watch the skies. Watch the skies, yeah. <laughs> I bring you a warning. Every one of you listening to my voice, tell the world, tell this to everybody wherever they are. Watch the skies everywhere. Keep looking. Keep watching the skies. And in a way, here, Quatermass ends with watch the ground. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We're going to find more of these and we have to fight this and we have to overcome our, as you say, you know, our Martianness. Yeah. We, we yeah. are the Martians. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, interestingly, though, the film doesn't, I like that speech because I think Morel does it very well and it's a nice sort of, when you've done all six episodes, it's a nice kind of rise. And notice Quatermass does it on the telly because Neil is very aware of much of it. There's a scene in the pub where, you know, everything goes wrong because they're watching it on the telly and they put a caption up saying, you know, something has gone wrong with you. Well, that actually happened in the last episode of the Quatermass experiment. Something went wrong in the studio and they had to mm. pause and put a breakup down announcement oh just as the monster was taking over Westminster <laughs> Abbey. So sort of fiction and reality uh, are sort of conjoined. Right. So uh, Neil is sort of giving a nod to that, but he's very aware. Look at Aliens of London, the Doctor Who story, and, and a lot of sci-fi that is told, you know, where people are watching it on the telly or it's being done by reporters. Neil is a pioneer at that sort of thing as, as having everything done through the media. And of course, television is a new medium. So that, that makes it a bit more powerful and immediate. And, and it's, it's sort of saying it's, all, it's already got into this, this thing that we watch, you know, that it's vision on sound. But that speech was really resisted by the BBC head of drama, Michael Barry, who wrote on the last page of the script that he was sent. 
Uh, this has mm. been a really brilliant series and it ends on something like a patronizing homily or something. Mm. And, and he really urges them not to do it. And mm. they do. Mm. And I, I understand why people might think it's a little bit full on. And, you know, in case you've missed it, here's, <laughs> here's what this was about. But, um, but, but I, I, I don't mind it, but I can understand people might, might find it a bit on the nose. What do you think, guys? Should, was it good or bad? Would you would you leave it in? Oh, it was. It was good. It, it was like a little little synopsis of everything that came before. And, you know, in the what immediately precedes it is uh, there, there's a lot of action and intense stuff going on. And Roni, of course, gives the ultimate sacrifice. And uh, you know, after that, it it probably is not a bad idea to have sort of more of a calm, uh, reflective summary of what what we've learned you know i i I had no objection i also love that you know the end of course is him just walking off set it's a very dramatic Mm. sort of he said what he has to say and and then he's going to walk off set yeah so we talked a lot about andre morell's quater mass roni how do you say that kek sec how do you say Uh, this it's cease linda short for cecil cease linda although in, in the uk they called him sec but uh he pronounced it cease, cease Linda. Huh. He really impressed me right from the beginning. Like he was just so committed to this. He mm. wasn't winking. He wasn't embarrassed by the material. I mean, sometimes you can tell, right. When, when the actor's like, well, this is my job. I guess I got to do this stupid science fiction story. And I didn't feel that at all with him. I also think in that, you know, it, there's a lot of British theater and film actors in there and, and, and in that sort of, and it has the sort of slightly staid proper diction that that might be off-putting to a modern audience and i think linda because he's from a canadian tradition and has a sort of life and a vitality about him and a naturalism that i think really helps to make it a bit more modern and to make his character uh you know a bit more sort of electrifying and because you know he's the hope for the future as it were and i think he's great he's felix leiter in um goldfinger mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, he's uh, and and I think he, yeah, I think he's key because the, 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 the first actor they wanted for it was Miles Mallison, who's a sort of tubby, balding, white-haired British character actor who you can imagine sort of being a bit bumbly and moon spectacled, and 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 I think it would have been a different show. Mm. And I think then Linda sort of comes out of left field, and I think really gives it a different energy because that central triumvirate of of Breen, Quatermass, and Roney are very important to the whole subtext of the of the story. I also felt he made it believable that he and Quatermass had a real relationship, mm. which is important, especially to the ending of the yeah. story. Right. Yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, now, Barbara, uh, the character Barbara Judd, played by Christine Finn, something really interesting to me here, and I'm curious your, your take on this, Toby. Both of our heroes, Quatermass and Roni, really do not treat her well at times. They disregard her (laughs) intelligence and the value she's providing. And one of the things that was interesting to me was it seemed to me the show was on her side. They were making it clear that was happening, but they don't call it out. Like they're never called to account for how they're treating her. Because I think that was of the time. I mean, I think, (laughs) you know, I think just having a, a, a sort of strong female character in it is pr- probably, it, it looks a bit dated now because yes, she's, she's dismissed and there's only one female character who's really a, a, about much. Um, and even Nigel Neal, in inter- I mean, I remember him being interviewed about the difference between the film and the TV series. And he said, well, our screaming girl was better than their screaming girl, meaning he preferred <laughs> Christine Finn's performance to Barbara Shelley in the film, who, who is very good. But the fact that Neil himself sort of calls her the screaming girl, because that was the, 
that was the figure. I th- but again, yeah. I think he's being slightly uh, arch in his sense of humor there because, as mm. you say, she's the one that goes and gets the newspaper files. She's the right. one. I mean, you could see it as patronizing that as the female with the heightened senses, she is yeah. the one who has sure. to try the machine in order to see the picture. And that's because because ladies are a bit more delicate right. and they have heightened sensibilities where men lift things and fight. Um, <laughs> but but it is at least an attempt to give a, a, a decent part to an actress, you know. But but yes, I mean, Britain, in, it's extraordinary, I think, uh, when you look at... Um, in living history, um, even, you know, how my mum's generation of women had lower expectations in terms of how they would be treated, what they would put up with from men and what their job expectations were. You know, it's, it's, it's been It's huge. funny that you say he called her the screaming character because unlike Susan and Doctor Who, which I want to get to in a moment, I don't feel that way about her at all. I wouldn't, that no. wouldn't even occur to me. I no. saw her as the hyper-competent proactive person as to say who was making things happen in fact and and i i'd be amazed if i'm the first person to think this i felt she could have been a great susan oh interesting yeah 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 she had to she had to she had another worldly quality about her christine finch she was an interesting actress she is the voice of tintin in thunderbirds oh okay and she just played um hermia in midsummer night's dream for for rudolph cartier and uh, yeah, she has she has a slightly strange, ethereal, slightly floaty quality about her. But I think she also convinces as the as the you know gung ho scientist as gung ho as you could be as a woman in the nineteen fifties. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I think she's a, she's a good character d- done well. But yes, the way they treat her is terribly dismissive. <laughs> I liked her character, and I uh, I mean, what you say about the. Quatermass and and Rooney being being dismissive, uh, yeah. When when she she comes in with that uh, valise full of uh, newspaper clippings, and uh, yeah, she puts some puts some backbone into digging those up, and and Quatermass just sort of blows her off. I thought, man, come on, at least give her a smile or something. <laughs> and I think doesn't Rooney say doesn't Rooney say I think she's gone off to have her hair done or something. <laughs> <laughs> So we have Breen played by Anthony Bushell, and I'm I'm curious, uh, especially because you're an actor, Toby. So I'm really curious your take on this. He's playing this such classic role, right? All these movies have either the military or the corporate person who's you know insisting on doing exactly the wrong thing and misinterpreting everything. As an actor, how do you how does that feel having this thing? Like, okay, I need to provide this, but you know, obviously. Uh, it's not how any normal person <laughs> would act. I don't know. Well, well, we say that, but interestingly, Bushel's performance, I think, probably looks the most phony to modernize, especially when he's sort of taken over, because I don't think anyone's quite worked out how to act being taken over by aliens. And he gets a bit sort of histrionic. And I, I, I think he, w- he was an interesting actor. He's very good in the film A Night to Remember, the, the Titanic film, mm. where he plays the captain of the Carpathia. Um, he's got he's he's got a wonderful. He's very tall and he's very dignified. And uh, he was a he was a close associate of Laurence Olivier. And uh, and Laurence Olivier used to say, "Oh, Tony Bushel, look at those eyes blazing with insincerity." Um, uh, but he was he became a producer and a director. And I think he's very good at the Colonel Blimp type figure, which was a big figure in drama at that time. And interesting, looking at the contemporary reports. His performance is the one that the critics and the public sort of identify with the most. Everybody mm. loves Anthony Bushell's turn as the colonel because I think Cecil Linder is, is perhaps a little modern mm. and, and it, perhaps it's a performance slightly ahead of its time. 
And I think people mm. had got the measure of Morel because he was such a he was such a well established face on television at this point. He was one of the first really established television actors. Mm. But I think it's a type that is so embedded in the 1950s where the military still, you know, you still had a war office. It's not the Ministry of Defence note. It's mm -hmm. the war office. Um, <laughs> and those sort of blimpy colonel figures were very recognisable types. And so I think Bushel is doing exactly what is required of him. I think we're just slightly one step removed from it now. Yeah. But he has a lovely cold, a glassy quality. You say it's a 50s thing. For one of our future episodes, I was watching the 1976 King Kong, exact same character. Charles Gordon plays the exact same character. Aliens. Ah. Paul Reiser plays the exact same character. Like that, that character I think is just a staple. Like somebody needs to be there to screw things up. Oh, I see. Yeah. Well, in terms, in terms of what he represents rather than the type, because yes, Paul, Paul Reiser is a, is a duplicitous scheming business, oik, isn't he? Um, so yeah, in terms of the type of, in terms of the sort of character type, as it were, Bushel is the cold military man. In terms of the sort of plot character type yes he's the spanner in the works um, <laughs> he's the conduit to the bureaucracy where he can sell this stupid idea that the uh that it's a that it's a german experimental v weapon and that the martians have been uh, a, a propaganda weapons made up of fish uh fish bones and and the minister who i think is as close to a cliched character as we get in it who goes oh yes that appeals to my common sense and he's you know and he's clearly a sort of stuffy british okay, but idiot. i'm gonna defend yeah. him on that i <laughs> think his theory was actually pretty reasonable when you look at world war ii both sides were indeed trying to fool each other sometimes with pretty complex things you know we had this whole thing is actually a very popular podcast about it now in the u.s where you know they took a, a dead body and put some information on it in order to keep them from knowing where d-day was going to occur and uh. there was there was like a whole military camp that was created that was just like plywood and you know fake tanks and stuff again so that the germans would think that that's where the invasion was going to occur so ah, I think his theory was okay. pretty plausible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, more okay. plausible than Martians. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, uh, but yes, but, yes. But it was it was down at the uh, five million year old layer. Of yeah, the dirt, that's so a little problem. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, that's just what those scientists say. What do they know? <laughs> <laughs> but and also, that's quite advanced science at the time. I know. Yeah. I know some of the you know some of the audience at home had trouble understanding the importance of the, 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 the rocket being underneath the bones. Right. Do you know what I mean? And go, well, why is that a thing? It's no, because it suggested that the rocket's older than the bones and the bones are right. 5 million years old. Right, that's, right. that's a big revelation. And, and, right. but yeah. you know, cause we're not talking about a, an audience that is literate in, in, you know, the tropes right. of sci-fi as we are, you know, sure. and it didn't come up here. It could have there actually, um, there is a conflict between some folks in religious circles and, and folks who do, you know, this kind of work, because there is this idea of, oh, well, when you have these strata and you find these bones here and these here, actually there was some, you know, thing that happened, some earthquake or something that just mixed them up and they weren't really mm. in that order. Right. So there is, there are people, because if you want to say that the earth is 10,000 years old or whatever, you have to come up with some of these theories. Sure. Another one I'm curious what your thoughts on, because I thought, Breen, so for this kind of character, Breen's end was very unusual. Normally, either they're going to go all out and be in some fight with the good guys or whatever, you know, before they get killed, or they're going to have a heroic turn where they realize they were wrong all along and they sacrifice themselves. So he could have been the Roni character, right? Going and, and mm. sacrificing himself to end it. 
But no, off screen, he dies. And then we just see him in this sort of caked, you know, mummified thing and he falls over. Mm. That's a really unusual ending for that kind of character. It's a nice metaphor though, isn't it? Because he's fossilized. <laughs> you know, he's he will neither flux nor wither nor change his state. You know, the the intransigent military man, the mm. closed military mind, which mm. is what Neil was sort of having a go at, in his ultimate end, he becomes fossilized. He becomes mm. as atrophied as his imagination. That's really interesting. Yeah. Uh so I think that's why I think that's why they do that. But it does mean you don't quite get the um the sort of showdown that you like. I suppose the showdowns in the previous episode where Quatermass, you know, confronts him in front of the press and goes, mm. you know, is, is Colonel Breen an imbecile or a coward? Because <laughs> once, yeah, once the Martian uh, thing grips the crowd, he, yeah, he sort of prostrates himself in front of the thing. Well, he does kill uh, poor old Fuller Love, which I think is a, 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 a shame to happen because Fuller Love is the only character in more than one Quatermass serial. He's in the Quatermass oh. experiment as well. Uh, the journalist, Nigel Neal's dad was a journalist. Um, so I think, you know, the, and, and telling the story through the newspapers, again, ties in with the media thing. But but Fuller Love is the best character in the Quatermass experiment as well. So mm. uh, it's nice to have him back and then sad to see him meet his end. So mm. we had a question about his name because uh, the assumption is kind of that that was a on-the-nose thing. But then Guy looked into it and saw that Fuller Love is actually a, a, a name. Do, do you think that was he was that name used for its meaning or is it just coincidental and it's a common name? It's not that it's not a, that common an, a name, although it is a name. Um, uh, interestingly, in the script for the Quatermass experiment, it suggests that the Fuller Love identity might not might actually be a a newspaper identity, mm. uh, and so that he, you know, that a bit like James Bond, the you mm. know the the Fuller Love is this is this sure. James Fuller Love is this figure, and whether that's the the guy or not and he is played by a different actor in uh, mm. the Great Mass experiment he's played by Paul Whitson Jones but um, who they did try to get for Pitt but he was unavailable um so i mean neil was quite deliberate with his names quatermass was chosen from the phone book um but a lot of the names like the baldhoon site and uh, and various others are, are, are manx names from the isle of man um where he's he's from because of that had a lot of folklore mm. and odd sounding names but i don't know exactly where he got the name full of love from so i don't know okay. uh, i do i will say i was curious about quatermass because that's such a brilliant name i mean you just couldn't yes pick they, a better they, name. they they wanted an avant-garde they wanted a sort of stylish uh, name and there's loads of letters that neil had from people saying i'm a quatermass where did you get the name from and he <laughs> and, and he thought q would be a good place to start in in the original breakdown for the quatermass experiment he's called professor charlton uh, mm. and then and the, but then that but then and he's not the main character either but that oh you'll have to buy the book uh, which is coming out uh, next I will, year, I will. <laughs> uh, and um, but they they thought, well, let's let's look at Q to see what names are under Q because that might be quite a, a a noticeable name. And they flicked through, and the, and he, as Neil observed in the seventies, he said there were you know there were quite a lot of Quatermasses in the London telephone directory then, and he said you know they're all gone now. There are still a few Quatermasses about. Uh, a friend of mine, in fact, dated a a, a girl called uh, Quatermass, um, but mm. there aren't uh, there aren't quite so so many now. But uh, he thought quite a lot about his names. Colonel Breen was going to be Colonel Ring. Captain Potter was called Captain Archer right up until just before shooting. He's still, he's still Captain Archer in the shooting script. But then they have to do a thing where they have to run it by the military. And there was already a Captain Archer in the bomb disposal <laughs> world. So he had to become right. Captain Potter. Yeah, the names. The, the, he thought quite long and hard about his names. Hmm. 
So we already referenced him a bit. There's the driller guy. So it's Sladen. Richard Sladen, is it right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Sladen is the character, and he's played by Richard Shaw. Oh, okay. Who, yeah. I thought that was really interesting because he starts out as a total minor side character who you think is just going to be gone mm. after that episode. And he becomes rather a major character, and he has to do a lot. And I, I was really impressed. He has to do a lot, and he has to do a lot of what I would call science fiction acting, which, again, I, I'm not sure there was really a template for, as Anthony Bouchel shows. And I think the scenes where he's stricken, uh, and it's the scenes everybody remembers. My, one of the reasons I think Quatermass is amazing is that when I was watching Quatermass and the Pit on VHS, my mum walked into the room, and, it, and she walked in just at the bit where Sladden has left the dig, and he's sort of stumbling about with this curious gait that he has, that it turns out it's because he thinks he's a, a Martian. And he collapses, and my mum said, oh, my God, I remember this. This is where the gravel starts to move. And I thought, oh, she's remembering Doomwatch or something. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and literally, as mm -hmm. she said that, he hits the deck and the gravel starts to move, and that's the end of episode four. <laughs> uh, and the fact that my mum, who's not into science fiction uh, by any stretch of the imagination, remembered that from when right. she was younger really Im I impressed me. And it is a moment that a lot of people remember. And then he has the bit in the church where he mm -hmm. has to mm -hmm. uh, be struck by a vision of ancient Mars and he, t and he, and he sees through the eyes of the Martians and he, and he sees what's going on in the dark purple sky. And I think he does that so well. It's such a realistic, naturalistic performance of quite highfalutin sci-fi concepts. And he keeps it absolutely real and he keeps it very intense. And also there's a pathos running through him because he is a stricken man. And as you say, he's gone from being a sort of comedy character going, this is a secret job. Uh, and Colonel Breed's got that great line. I'm glad you don't talk about it, you know, uh, uh, and, and becomes the sort of moral center in a way and, and has that lovely relationship that he has with the vicar when you know, they say, we want to repeat this experiment. And he, and he asked the vicar to come with him to look after him. And I, mm. and I think it's a really sweet job. And I think it's, and, and Shaw quite often pops up in movies with like two lines. And he was very much a dependable supporting actor, often uncredited in films, all films, Dirty Dozen, Nights Remember, all sorts. Um, he, wow. he crops up and he has a face that's quite, he plays a lot of German soldiers in stuff. Uh, mm. But, but I think, and, and he pops up as a character actor in British TV, usually playing sort of, uh, cheery workman types or or <laughs> bank robbers he you know he was he's, but a very serviceable dependable thick-set character actor but i think the highlight of his career and he's absolutely brilliant in it is is quatermass and i was so impressed with his performance he was the first actor i ever wrote to and he was right. kind enough to write back yeah. to me oh. and that is that is responsible for the awful creature you see before you now <laughs> 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 so it, it, it's all down to the richard shaw inheritance if you like wow. uh, <laughs> So I have another actor question about that, though. I mean, what's it like or when you're not going to be one of the marquee actors and you have to come in and do maybe more than anyone else, right? Different, hit different notes, present different things. Like you're going to have to act your heart out and you're not going to be one of the people that people are writing about or that's going to be listed as an actor in the show. I mean, when I went to Wikipedia, his name is not in the list. Yes. Well, uh, but interestingly, uh, on one of the episodes, is it four or five? He, he suddenly goes higher in the cast list. They give him, they give him billing before Fuller Love in, uh, in episode four or five, I think. So I think that's a bit of special. He did get mentioned in a couple of the newspapers, but as you say, he's, um, I think if you were to do it now, if I was to write the Wikipedia page, <laughs> I would put him, I would consider him one of the stars. Also, he had the added, which I didn't know at the time, and he didn't tell me either, but I discovered from a couple of the other actors, he had the added pressure 
that he was not an actor with theatre experience. Mm. Now, mm. those actors were very, very rare. And one of the other actors, one of the actors who played one of the policemen, told me that actually in, 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 in uh, actors who only had experience of television were slightly looked down upon by certain mm. members mm. of the profession. There was a real snobbery. There was a snobbery towards television full stop. So, uh, but it was much, much better paid. So actors, you know, had to make a decision, really. Theatre was where it was at. I mean, for, for years after as well, but particularly mm. then. But Shaw had only done film and television and so was not, you know, cut from the same professional cloth as some of the other mm. performers. So there will have been a bit of pressure on him there as well. But he was a very cheery man. He was a very hardworking fellow who couldn't do enough for other people. And I think anything like that was a bit water off a duck's back. And mm. he just got his head down and, and got on with it. And I think it, it shows in the finished result. Mm. I enjoyed his performance in that gravel. Uh, that, that was well done, the, that effect. Do you know how they did it? Well, I was trying to figure if it was maybe like a flexible rubber mat with some gravel like glued to it on top. Yeah, it's, it's, it's gra gravel on top, of, on top of a mat and um, uh, golf balls tied with string and pulled. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's as sophisticated as you right. get. And now, of course, we'd spend $100,000 on a CGI yeah. shot for that. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it is totally compelling, and you don't need yeah. all that tech, right? Totally compelling, yeah. And even, I mean, there's all this creepy stuff where, you know, cups and plates are flying around again. No, And actually, I thought they did a really good job with the uh, two-by-fours, you know, the, the pieces of wood mm. floating yeah. around while he yeah. was running around. It's like, oh, that was pretty good. And, and Richard broke his toe. One of the, something hit him um, mm. during that sequence, and he broke his toe. Oh. Uh, but had to carry on. But a lot of that stuff being chucked is, is it's literally Nigel Neal, <laughs> the designer Clifford Hatz, and the visual effects guys, Jack Kine and Bernard Wilkie, and I think Michael Hart, who was the assistant floor manager, because that's who they had. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> you mentioned earlier, and, and this is something I had noted, there was, uh, especially coming from Doctor Who, where there's very little cast, right? So there was a surprising number of extras. I mean, just dozens and dozens of extras yeah. in different scenes. Did they just have the budget or was taken seriously? I mean, why why could they have all that and Doctor Who couldn't? Let me put it that way. Uh, because these were prestigious productions. Rudolf Cartier was a very demanding uh, producer-director. Early on in television, I think you, you, you... Well, I mean, a lot of early television plays have only got five or six people in a room. But Cartier pushed. By the time they get to episode six of the Quatermass Experiment, there's a memo saying you're going to have to pay your, your new actors as little as possible just to, <laughs> just to be able to afford them. Uh, so they, they, they try and cast episode six on the cheap. In a way, actors are still cheaper than sets and special effects. So you tell your story with people. So right. instead of seeing London being destroyed, you have a man with a torn up coat coming in and saying, I've just been caught in it out there. London's being destroyed. You know, so you get a lot of reportage, even yeah. though you do see a lot of it and all that stuff in, in the pit. But yes, I mean, but Neil described it as the time of, car, you know, casts of thousands. But that's because Cartier wanted to fill the screen and he believed yeah. in filling the screen but yes there's a hell of a lot of extras uh, who didn't come cheap mm. and i mean they use them throughout but i think in that last episode or two it was very important because if you just had two people yeah. running around and this is all the doctor who problem right you know it doesn't feel like this is an epic story if yes. you you have two people running around. <laughs> the, the, whole pl the whole planet is represented by three people with hats on. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yes, that scene where they all surge out of the pit in episode six and Potter and Barbara get caught up in it and, and then you see Quatermass caught in the throng is phenomenal and extraordinary. And hundreds of people sweeping past the camera. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazingly well done. And that, that stuff's all done on film as well. And, and so they, you know, they have time to, to shoot it properly too. 
Now, I hadn't noticed before. So each of these episodes ended, and I found it very charming. <laughs> they would list the exact date and time that the next episode would show and what the name was. Yeah. Is that usual? Because, I mean, you had the Radio Times, right? And I don't see this in Doctor Who, so I, don't, I didn't know where that came from. Well, again, I think it's a quite new format. And, and of course, if you, if you missed it, you never saw it again. So, mm. yeah, it's their way of saying, you know, make sure. And, of course, they have the, the, the big recap as well which was very mm -hmm. much a, a, a oh, very you know, helpful, actually, a, 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 a <laughs> Cartier thing, which is why there might be some hope for the uh, episodes of the Quatermass experiment, because Cartier, um, you know, uh, f filmed some, some bits of that in order to have it for the recaps. There isn't a, the same sort of recap on episode two of the Quatermass experiment, but I've I've got enough evidence, I think, to suggest that they did do it for the later episodes so that, they, that you know, there might be strips of film somewhere. But yeah, that was very much Cartier insisted on that as part of his budget that you had the running time and the resources to cut together a sort of a mini film at the beginning uh, and the narrator of those is nigel neal by the way oh wow no oh no actually in this one uh, he only narrates episode three alexander moises the narrator because alexander moises is away over christmas i think so so neil only does the recap on episode three and you can tell because he has a slightly sort of manx accent <laughs> ah. yeah but, and he's the voice of the telescreen in 1984 as well. Oh, well. Uh, yeah, and, you, and you can see him lurking in the background a few times in Quatermass in the Pit in his hat. Yeah, I think we should do the Nigel Neal BBC ones or maybe early BBC. We'll, we'll figure out some topic. But I, I've got the DVDs. I haven't watched them yet. I'd, I'd love to watch more of those. One of the things that was, as a lifelong science fiction person, I was just constantly being, I don't know, shocked or, or surprised or whatever by uh, the things this influenced. So... So Arthur C. Clarke in particular must have been influenced by this. I think so, wouldn't you? 2001, they have the excavation scene that looks exactly like this. I mean, or, you know, so either Kubrick or Clarke, but it looks just like this, right? You, instead of a monolith, you have the spaceship, but you have the whole setup the same yeah. way it was on the moon. And then in 2001, again, it's the idea that the monolith shaped humanity. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, and I don't, uh, I, I mean, I, 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 because it was such a big thing on television, it seems to me inescapable that those things were influenced. And I know, and you know, Carpenter is hugely influenced by Nigel Neal. You know, Prince of Darkness is, is, is very like the stone tape, you know, hmm. uh, and it, anything that sort of suggests the power of something ancient revisiting us as a haunting or as an influence. Right. Is very much what Neil was all about, and and that's all buried in the folklore of 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 the Isle of Man, the triple legged Martians. Uh, that well, the, the the symbol of the Isle of Man, where Neil is from, is it's a three legged symbol. Hmm. A lot of that stuff about sort of ancient folklore, you know, seeping out of the stones, as it were, is mm -hmm. is hugely part of that that Manx community folklore by, passed on by word of mouth. Another mm -hmm. example of that with Arthur C. Clarke. So one of the books that was my one of my favorites when I was a teenager was Childhood's End. Yes. These aliens show up and they hide themselves and they won't show themselves to us. And it turns out they look like demons. And apparently we had, you know, had some psychic thing where yeah. what they looked like became our concept of the devil, which is right out of this story, you know. Yeah. And I love it. I love Childhood's End as well. I, actually, I In fact, I got close to uh, adapting it for, for Radio 4 and then it fell oh, at the last wow. hurdle oh. because there, there are a lot. Of, yes, the 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 Azul-like uh, demon uh, aliens, yes, with their cloven hooves in there. And it's a brilliant way of science fiction, yes, embedding itself in our folklore, which just makes it a bit more potent. And it makes it sort of part of our story rather than, 
you know, razzmatazz from from outer space, which which I think is harder to make sort of horrific in a way or haunting because it's space is by its nature futuristic. So, <laughs> right, so to tie right. it in with the with the past gives it, you know, give, gives it a little bit of an extra sort of power to haunt us, I think. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't know if Neil and Clark ever spoke, and I don't know if Clark ever cited Neil as an influence. It'd be worth looking into. Right. It's it's ah. just so hard to imagine because Clark lived there, right? I mean, he was British, I think. Um, so it's just hard to imagine that he wasn't influenced by that. Uh, what surprised me on the Doctor Who influence side is, and and you know so vastly much more than I do about Doctor Who, so you can can contradict me if necessary. I felt like. The first and second Doctor, not so much, but third and fourth Doctors, I felt like their story is very influenced by this, you know, digging up things, you know, Inferno, et cetera, where, you know, you're digging up things and coming up with stuff you shouldn't. And Well, I mean, John Pertwee's first season is essentially Quatermass. So the, the opening shots of Spearhead from Space are essentially the opening shots of Quatermass hmm. too. Oh, um, Inferno has a lot uh, of similarities with the Quatermass experiment and, and Quatermass 2. Ambassadors of Death is a bit Quatermass experimenty as well. Mm-hmm. And the Silurians, of course, has that thing right. about ancient... Oh, absolutely. So, and, and Silurians the, is like a retelling of this story. Yeah, <laughs> people with race... But also the demons, they have a whole scene where they look at a slide projection of going, look, all these all these things with horns, just like the aliens have horns. Right, right, you know? right. And then Image of the Fendal, they find uh, a, a, a pentacle embedded in a skull right. Uh, right. that's that's really, really ancient uh, and, and is part of an alien ancient race that's influenced mankind's development so yeah there's quite a bit of quite a bit of quatermass in uh, image of the fendal as well so nigel neil hated doctor who by the way <laughs> <laughs> the guy you have all this to look forward to but a little uh-huh. odd question there then why why at least again my take why would the early doctor who the first and second doctor not really have i don't i don't sense quatermass in that and so no, it's like well, this weird delay well, it's partially because Doctor Who doesn't uh, have a present-day story until the War Machines in 1966, which, with its you know big military mm-hmm. presence, is a bit feels a bit Quatermassy. Um, because I think Doctor Who was more of from the sort of fantastical. Doctor Who's a bit weirder, you know. Quatermass, I think, wanted to tell its science fiction stories and ground them in reality, whereas Doctor Who, I think, wanted to take reality and sort of pervert it and make it strange and mystical and and take our realistic characters into the unknown. Doctor Who is an adventure in time and space, whereas Quatermass is invading us with this strangeness and unsettling us as a result. There's something a bit more of a voyage of discovery about Doctor Who in a way. Well, Mm. and I think you're right, because then it makes sense that it starts with the third Doctor because he's stuck on Earth. He's stuck on Earth, indeed. And, uh, I mean, Derek Sherwin, who produced um, that first series of uh, John Pertwee, Season 7, invoked Quatermass. He said, "We want, let's do something a bit Quatermassy." It was a, de- it was oh, a deliberate okay. uh, uh, and so, again, It's a spoiler for Guy who once commented, <laughs> Sorry, oh, yeah. it would be interesting if Doctor Who was stuck on Earth for a while. And I'm like, eh, we'll see. <laughs> um, sorry, sorry, Guy. I think, I, think right. the, I think the strangest things for Doctor Who fans, and I don't know if you noticed this, Ron, is that handsome hero Captain Potter is shock eye of the Quonsing Grig in The Two Doctors. And you've never yeah. seen two more different performances. Wow. Uh, okay. But uh, yeah, John Stratton, the actor who plays Captain Potter, who's the, the sort of traditional hero type, really, is the wonderfully overblown turn of Shockeye, the cannibalistic, sh- well, he's not a cannibal, but the flesh-eating chef in uh, The Two Doctors. <laughs> okay. There you go. So, I mean, we've talked about a whole lot of stuff, but at the end of this, Toby, what would be your pitch for why a modern audience should pay attention to Quatermass? 
Well, I think they'll be astonished at how good a production it is. If you can, if you can see past, you know, the diction, which is slightly dated, and some, obviously the female roles and things like that. But you know, you have to, you have to when you travel back in time. Just you, you know, if you want those things to hamper your enjoyment, you can, but you lose. Yeah. Uh, I think if you know, uh, in terms of, I, I was surprised as a Doctor Who fan when I first saw it. It had always been spoken of in hallowed terms of just how exceptionally good the production was, of how good the performances are. And the first two Quatermasses are good, but they are primitive. There's a lot of location filming in, in Quatermass 2, but I think Quatermass and the Pit is the synthesis of all the work that they've done. And you see television evolve between 1953 and 1958-59 when this is done. Quatermass experiment is extremely primitive, shot on Alexandra, at Alexandra Palace on very clunky cameras. To, to what they have now, which is scenes on film. The stuff in the pit looks gorgeous. We still have it on 35mm, which is fantastic. But, and yet, still done live, which is an amazing achievement. Yeah. Uh, the, the, mm -hmm. the stuff that's not on film is done live by the actors. And I think that gives an intensity to, to the performances. But it's not just what you would expect from the 1950s. As you say, we've got a concept, that's enough. It's science fiction, wow. They go, no, no, we've got this science fiction idea, but one, we have to make it really believable. Two, let's tie it in with something that's a bit spooky and a bit scary. But three, let's make it work not only in terms of what it says about the characters and how the characters respond to it, but also it's, Neil had made loads of notes from the new scientist. Everything in there as a scientific concept is tied in with the mythology as well, but is plausible. But also, not only does he go to great attempts to make it plausible, he ties it in with the subtext because he has something to say as well. And that makes it sound quite dry and po-faced, but it's not because it's action-packed, it's scary, it's quite haunting, it's, it's got some nice jokes in it, but the jokes are organic and come through character. Neil was big on telling stories through character and all of his characters are very, very well drawn. It's a good precursor to Doctor Who and yet it is unlike Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. And also... This was mainstream drama. This was what people watched as part of their mainstream drama. And sandwiched between quite light fare, you know, as well, was this sort of apocalyptic horror that is supremely intelligent and extremely well done. And I think Quatermass in the Pit is one of the great achievements of British television. Well, I think we can't end it any better than that. <laughs> so, Toby, how can people find you on the internet? <laughs> Oh, God. Well, I'm on Twitter at Toby Haydoke, and my surname is H-A-D-O-K-E, uh, but it's pronounced as it isn't spelt. I'll, I'll t the reason for that is because years ago, I think my forebears were, caught, were fisher folk, and a, a Mr. Haddock married a social climbing woman who couldn't bear to have a fishy name, and so they <laughs> created this, this word that nobody can pronounce or spell. I, I do a series of Doctor Who podcasts called Toby Haydoke's Time Travels, one is a set of commentaries. One is a, a deep dive into the minutiae of the making of each episode in order. And one is a series of sort of whimsical essays that hopefully have humor in, because I'm a, I'm a stand-up comedian by trade and an actor. I'm in a TV show over here called Co Coronation Street e. that, uh, that destroyed Doctor Who. So I feel sorry <laughs> in its first run. Uh, and I also present uh, on Radio 4 Extra their science fiction hour. And I've got a YouTube channel, uh, Toby Hader, which is my name. So I'm I'm about if I haven't I think I've probably said more than you want to hear of me for one lifetime. But if if you if you want any more, uh, I'm easily findable. Well, I will say for anyone who's any kind of Doctor Who fan, uh, you just can't beat your podcast. I have to admit, in our very first episode, 
I kind of defined us as the opposite of you. I did not name you or, or Steven Chapansky of saying, well, there's these podcasts where they talk about, you know, who was the sister of the grip and where did she go and <laughs> yeah, all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we decided to be a little more high level consumer oriented, but me as a fan, I'm like mainlining your podcast. Yeah. I love that you track down all the students from the school in the yes. first episode. I, yeah, I've I've realized that what I do is for a very small amount of it's it's a very it's all very niche, but then then but within that niche there'll be a lot of hopefully happy people. And I sort of do what I would want somebody else mm -hmm. to do. And I've realized nobody was doing it. So I thought, well, I'll do, I'll do it then. All right. So I, I'm sort of doing what I, and it's a bit like that on the DVD and Blue Range as well. I pitch documentaries that I would like to see as a consumer. And so I'm, I'm delighted when they, when they agree to them because it's very much servicing my needs. But the beauty of the Blu-ray range is that it can do more populist stuff as well. And so my stuff can you know, can, can sneak in there. And that's, that's rather nice. So yeah, I've dedicated myself to very much the, uh, the minutiae, but why not? Eh? <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been great. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. It's been, it's, it's a great pleasure. That is the full account. Matthew Roney is a brave man and friend. Much more, for it is with his kind that hope lies. For they have outgrown the Martians. If another of these things should ever be found, we are armed with knowledge, but we also have knowledge of ourselves and of the ancient destructive urges in us that grow more deadly as our populations increase and approach in size and complexity those of ancient Mars. Every war crisis, witch hunt, race riot, purge is a reminder and a warning. We are the Martians. If we cannot control the inheritance within us, this will be their second dead planet.